2: Yes. Do you think I'm pretty? Well, I am gorgeous. Just...
3: Come to me.
4: last time you touched someone.
3: I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Rob St. Mary.
1: You know, I really need to exfoliate.
3: Also with us this week is half of the Faculty of Horror podcast miss alexandra west
0: hey thank you so much for having me i'm just a little disappointed you guys didn't want to come to my white van to record this but it's great to do it like this
3: this week we're looking at under the skin the 2013 film from director jonathan glazer based loosely very loosely on the book by michael faber the film stars scarlett johansson as a woman who seduces men before leading them into an amorphous black goo and, uh, well, I really can't say more than that. We are going to be getting into spoiler territory galore on this one, so if you haven't seen Under the Skin, go ahead, turn us off, go watch the movie, come on back, and hopefully we can help you understand it and have a nice discussion. So, Alexandra, when did you first see Under the Skin and what did you think?
0: I got a chance to see it uh, here in Toronto, where I live, and it got a small theatrical release. So I went to check it out with a friend of mine. And uh, we both heard quite a bit about it, because one of the great things about living in Toronto is that we have uh, the Toronto International Film Festival, or TIFF, where Under the Skin had screened you know, several months before. So a bunch of my friends had seen it and were really, really excited about it. And they couldn't tell me whether they loved it or it was good or bad. They just like really wanted me to see it. So I sat down with my friend and she's also a big cinephile and we just watched it and we walked out of there and we didn't have a word to say to each other. And if you know, you're know you like me, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners are, you know, you watch several movies a week and I can jot down an opinion, which I do about almost any movie I watch. But this one really caught me off guard in ways I couldn't even imagine. And it stayed with me for a really long time. And it's something I kind of keep encouraging people to go see because I'm really hungry for people to talk to about it so it's uh, great to finally get to do it on this medium
1: I had not seen it Uh, I remember when it came out and I wanted to see it and then it was on Netflix and then it disappeared on me so uh, I didn't get a chance to see it but I did love the theme song from this uh, film isn't it uh, Under the Skin Under the Skin Things Are Better Down in the Goo I don't know it's some sort of variant on that um, uh, Little Mermaid deal (laughs) No, under the skin. It, uh, it it was one of those that um, I, I knew it was coming out, and all I remember of the the promo materials was Scarlett Johansson in like a fur coat, and that I was like, oh, Scarlett Johansson in a fur coat, that's interesting. And actually, watching the film, I think part of the reason why people walked out like you did in the end is sort of how it's plotted and, and everything like that. But I think it's also kind of throws you off because it is Scarlett Johansson in the film. It's uh, I think if it was complete unknowns like the rest of the film, I think it would be even weirder and uh, maybe a little bit more um, easy to walk away from. But the fact that they put this well-known person, this well-known actress that we have some sort of affinity with in this role uh, sort of adds an extra level that we have to kind of grapple with. I saw this one very recently.
3: I saw the preview for it before I saw Hodorowski's Dune, and the preview looked fantastic, and I was very excited to see it. Uh, I ended up going to see Lucy instead. If I was going to see one Scarlett Johansson film over the summer, it would have been The Avengers. But then I went and saw Lucy as well, and she was just making scads of movies at this particular point, And I was very excited to see this one, but for some reason it just did not make it onto my plate and it ended up being on just a ton of top 10 lists last year to the point where it's getting a little ridiculous and when we asked alexandra to be on the show and kind of said okay let's you know come up with a movie and we initially i thought that we were going to do in my skin but the definitive in my skin piece has already been written so we didn't want to go there so we went ahead and said let's do under the skin if we're going to do a skin movie Let's do Under the Skin. And, yeah, I have been really looking forward to this discussion ever since I saw it. I've been kind of mulling it over. Uh, You guys know me. I went a little bit crazy with this. I read the book. I read the scripts. I have been reading as many articles as I possibly can about it. And, yeah, I'm curious to get your guys' take. But we do have a special treat this week. Rather than us just kind of describing it in our own words i thought that we could use the help of a website called horribly hooched which seems to be about drinking and watching movies
1: i thought it was about making out with uh, hooch from turner and hooch but uh, i must have the wrong side
3: and you are on fire tonight with these jokes
1: i can't <laughs> help it I'm, I'm this is amazing i'm just the prince of darkness this evening so uh get ready
3: yeah, let's go ahead and dive into Horribly Hooched, and the write-up for that starts off, continuing with our Women in Horror Month, it is time to turn to the lathsome Scarlett Johansson, who has shown us that she can be a woman who can kick ass in movies, films like Iron Man 2, The Avengers, The Avengers 2, Captain America 2, and Lucy. She is one of those actresses who has grown up in the movies, and we have watched her turn from a hot box box big-titted seductress, much like our fathers did with Elizabeth Taylor. But to our chagrin, though, many of her roles over the years were sexy bitches. She has been stingy with sharing her charms with us. And I guess charms is her nudity. Even in Don John, where everyone got naked and sex was the through line, she kept most of her clothes on. Aww. So that's the kind of review this is going to be. Let's just set it up right here. So...
1: So this is the Feminist Film Theory website, is that what you're saying? I believe that Laura Mulvey wrote this piece. Right, I was going to say.
0: Yeah, I uh, read this piece when uh, Mike initially sent me some of the readings, and I kind of went, okay, well, I should definitely pick this out since it's highlighted so (laughs) thoroughly in his notes. And I read that opening paragraph, and it's like my stomach just dropped. It was every fear I had about someone watching this movie coming to this movie and misinterpreting it just based on Scarlett Johansson's body. It's kind of like Showgirls in that it's a film with a lot of sex in it, but it's not very sexy. So to read that, it was very it's very much at odds with my perception of the film. And mine as well. I found
3: this to be just so horrible that I just kind of wanted to highlight this and use this as kind of our sounding board with which we can kind of, uh, launch into our own discussions. But this thing is just, it is such a, yeah, I'm there at this movie to see boobs basically is what it felt like. And, uh, it just gets worse as it goes on from here.
1: There are plenty of Fred Olin Ray and Jim Wynorski films that you can watch, okay? Why why do you want to bring that kind of uh, level? Nothing against our good friends over at uh, BB&BC, but, I mean, come on. I mean, why do you want to bring that kind of level to this film? I mean, it's pretty evident from the opening that this is not a standard film. And to me, it's, it's – like I don't know, I had this feeling when I was watching this thing that this movie could have been made sometime in the '60s. Really, the the only thing that makes it modern are the haircuts and some of the effects. But you could pretty much make the whole film—you could have made the whole film 40 years ago as some sort of experimental feature, and I think it would have been as valid then as it is now.
3: Yeah, I kind of got a little bit of the British kitchen sink kind of stuff from this—lower um, budget but high concept kind of idea—and. I really like the way that there's not a lot of dialogue in this film, and the dialogue that is there, thank God for subtitles, because there's a lot of really thick Scottish accents in here, which kind of makes sense because the first film that I ever saw by the director Jonathan Glazer was Sexy Beast, in which Ben Kingsley has this tremendous accent that he's working through in this film, and had it not been for subtitles, I never would have made my way through that because I'm okay. You, you guys know that I watch Monty Python and, you know, the young ones with the best of them. I try to keep up on the vernacular. I try to understand how our our friends across the pond speak and everything. But OMG, I was (laughs) really flummoxed by a lot of the dialect in this film. Now, I don't know if this was a sweet sound to you, Rob, since this is the Scottish brogue, as it were. That's
1: right. This is the mother tongue, literally, because my mom's from Scotland. She doesn't quite have an accent anymore, although it does come back if I... Get her to the pub and get her around other people. It's kind of like you know, people talk like they're from the old neighborhood or something. So um, it didn't bother me in the least. I could I could figure out what they were saying. I thought, oh okay, well where is this? And then I started hearing the accents, and I go, ah okay. So, so yeah, it didn't bother me. I didn't even I didn't even know there was a subtitle track available for this thing. So I guess uh, you were one up on me, sir.
3: So let's let's head back into horribly hooched here a little bit, and we will talk about the primary motivation for seeing this film for Mister Hooched. So one of the primary motivations for seeing under the skin was the promise of seeing her very naked several times, several great tit shots, and full frontal nudity just as a bonus. She is not a natural blonde, guys, if you ever wondered. Scarlet did all of her own nude scenes without using a body double. Hurrah for her, giving her all for art, it seems. The nudity is... It's so poignant in this film when it happens, so that he's kind of just basing everything on the nudity. I mean, it comes at very good spots in the film.
0: Yeah, and it feels like a very... Kind of clinical nudity. There's that sense of examining oneself. And anything that's sexy isn't really that sexy because it is so clinical, because we're viewing it not only kind of through the woman's eyes of Scarlett Johansson or her character, as she's supposedly called Laura in this film, um, but we're viewing them through the eyes of an alien. So there's something very removed and distant from it. The one thing for me as a woman, which I found quite um, shocking and refreshing to see on screen was an erect male penis. You know, we don't get to see that a lot except for in porn. So I love that uh, Glazer was able to enter that into the discussion of nudity in this film. And at the same time, I think Scarlett Johansson's nudity is so delicate and subtle and she's kind of examining herself and by her focusing her attention on her own body it seems to kind of you know take the air out of the room a little bit when it comes to you know that like mr skin crowd for me anyway i I certainly wasn't turned on by it she has a great body but it was so much more about being a woman and examining your body through new eyes
3: so let me continue on here real quick because we're hopefully going to get past the nudity and into the plot a little bit here but imagine my surprise when what is delivered by the film is a mindfuck bizarre indie that violates all the parameters of the other science fiction movies, creating both something deadly dull and absolutely fascinating. The movie is based on a novel by Michael Faber, and in it, his alien protagonist has a name – which is Italy? I don't think he mentions it at all, and each episode or encounter with other characters provided the reader with more exposition. This is not so with the film, where basically we are not told or shown shit and find ourselves fighting the urge to walk out or click this bitch off out of frustration, boredom, and ignorance. I submit, however... If you stick it out to the last frame, the experience pays off and the uniqueness of the non-narrative and the strangeness of the movie stick with you for days, which I think we can all agree on that this movie definitely sticks with you well past the initial viewing. The film was directed by Jonathan Glazer, who started out directing TV commercials and music videos. The film took over 10 years to get filmed, and we'll talk a lot more about that after the the jump here, because he mentions novelist Alexander Stewart wrote the first three drafts of the screenplay. Glazer wrote some of the finished script, co-writing it with Walter Campbell, a pal of his from the TV commercial days. Glazer has directed seven films since 1998, including Sexy Beast and Birth. And I only know of two films that Glazer has directed. Do you guys know these other five films that Glazer has done?
0: No, it's like a mystery or he's on another IMDb that I'm not on. The secret IMDb? Yeah, the one we're all not allowed on.
1: The only one I knew, well, the only one that I saw, uh, as far as I can remember, is Sexy Beast. And I remember seeing that in theater.
3: Which is very surprising because your boy Jean Claude Carrier co wrote the script for birth. Thought you'd
1: be all over that one. Jean Claude Carrier is written about 250,000 different scripts. So it's, it's hard to keep up on all the stuff. And, um, you know, I, as you know, a big fan of uh, the stuff he did with Bunuel and his uh, output kind of dried up around 1978.
3: Yeah, I was very surprised to see his name on that film when it came up. And I did not get a chance to see Birth. I know Birth was recommended by some of our listeners and I really wanted to see it, but I just kept watching Under the Skin over and over again because of those great Scarlett Johansson tits.
1: I mean, come on. Is there any reason not to? I mean, isn't that the whole reason why you watch movies? I mean, for me, of I mean, it's about plot and ideas and, you know, beautiful art and, you know, deep existential thoughts. I mean, when, you know, there's a lovely pair of tits to stare at, you know, instead of going out and, oh, I don't know, making a connection with someone on the street and then staring at actually their tits because they want to show you their tits. Uh, we would rather just go in a theater and just be lonely, isolated, horrible um, boys. Theater? I'd
3: much rather do this at home, where I can close the blinds and just masturbate all night long.
1: Oh, well, you know, that's true. I'm getting confused with who we used to call the raincoat crowd when I used to work at a theater, anyway.
3: Continuing back to Horribly Hooched. The musical score was done by Michael Levy, who is a professional musician and composer. This was her only score for a feature film. I should probably add, so far, I believe that she will probably get some work after this, because the score is tremendous. She has a band called The Shapes, who are famous for using household items in their songs like vacuum cleaners, deck of cards, blenders, and mixers with thumping on plastic bowls. The cinematography was done by Daniel Landon, who has lensed 25 films since 1993. Now, I'm not sure if that's true or not, or if this is kind of that same weird IMDb that this guy's looking at who met Glazer when he started out shooting TV commercials and music videos, working with David Bowie, Bjork, Sneaker Pimps, and Smashing Pumpkins. Some of his films include 66, 44-inch Chest, and The Uninvited. The film was not a big box office winner. Quite the contrary. Many of the critics loved it, but the audiences did not flock to see it. Possibly the word of mouth killed it, because beyond the thrill of seeing all of Scarlett Johansson, the film requires intellect, patience, and knowledge about movies to get fully with the program. It ran 108 minutes, but seemed longer. It was reported that it had a $13 million budget, and its domestic gross was something like $2.6 million. I just read where this week Clint Eastwood's American Sniper has already earned $300 bucks. Critically, this was named one of the best films of 2014 by over 100 publications. It was filmed on location in Glasgow, Scotland. Now we jump into the really important part of this review. It's called The Babe Gallery. There is only one babe in this movie, Scarlett Johansson, who did a whole series of marvelous new scenes. And that's it. But That's The Babe Gallery right there.
1: Babe Gallery? Is it a series of photos of that lovely little pig from the movies that the guy who made Mad Max did?
3: Okay, let's talk about the movie that has no easy-to-follow plot. The movie that shall remain almost plotless. It opens on a high salon scene of deceased young woman's body lying in a ditch. A van pulls up and a man picks up the body and stuffs it into the back of the van. We follow the van to a sturdy two-story house on the outskirts of Glasgow. The man carries the dead woman inside and plops her on the floor. A very naked woman comes out of the shadows. There are very few lights on inside and examines the dead woman carefully as she strips off the corpse's clothes. Now, that is not how I necessarily remember this. I remember this being a completely lit area. This is the very opposite of the black room that we'll see later on in the film. This for me, was completely devoid of shadows. It was just almost one hundred percent light. Right. So this poor girl's body laying there, and Scarlett Johansson coming out, they were almost silhouettes in the way that they were shot.
1: Yeah, and uh, also he misses the entire opening, and I guess you could say credit sequence, which is only basically two title cards. That is this um, series of circles, and we get you know random sounds or something. It's kind of hard to figure out exactly what that is, but then it becomes sort of more apparent as the film goes on. And I sort of saw that as some sort of equivalent between looking at video of uh, eclipses and eyeballs and maybe birth canal or something like that, like this idea of, of things in space and sort of all of these circle equivalents that we get. It's not really spelled out in that way. And then we get to the scene of the guy picking up the woman on the side of the road and i think that you have to kind of talk about that opening to a certain extent i mean it's it's not really explained what that opening is but it can kind of be i guess partly figured out by later in the film
3: because it starts with almost like a complete black field and then this little pinprick of light that then kind of starts to change into these different shapes and everything. And then we kind of move into just an eye and the eye looks so strange to me. It doesn't look like it's a real eye just because of the way that the white is kind of creeping up on the, um, I don't know, would that be the cornea? I guess the the colored part of the eye, it's been a long time since I've taken biology, but looking is going to be so important in this movie. And you guys know how I just like get off on voyeurism in films and everything, and just how the viewer becomes a voyeur. And we have Scarlett Johansson just looking, looking, looking in this film. And then, obviously, she is very much the center of the male gaze when it comes to this film as well, as, as our friend at Horribly Hooched has uh, really shown to us how much she is the uh, object of this gaze.
0: And he good film deserves to be talked about from its opening scene. But what I find so interesting about Under the Skin is you know, we can read so many articles analyzing and deconstructing this film, and they all begin to separate the second this opening scene is discussed. Some people incorrectly identify the young woman who the biker puts in the back of his van as Scarlett Johansson, which she looks very very similar to her, but it's not her. Um, And then some people theorize that she's another alien Some people theorize she's just a young woman who happened to die and had the same body size as Scarlett Johansson's character so that she could take her clothes. I think this is really great because it allows us to open up into an interpretation that we choose. For me, I think the most telling and poignant moment of that opening scene when Scarlett Johansson is kind of watching and and undressing this young woman is we see a tear roll down the young woman's cheek. And for me, I personally like to believe that this is kind of a strange omen for scarlett johansson's character she that this young woman was you know the previous alien that was you know tasked to do the same job that scarlett johansson is going to do for this film and the tear kind of symbolizes that incoming humanity which becomes her downfall to a certain extent
3: i was so glad that you brought up that tear alexander because i wasn't sure if i saw that the first time Mm -hmm. and i had to go back and watch it a few more times and i kept thinking is, is that what I'm really seeing or not? And because she really appears like she's dead. But then when that tear comes out, I'm just like, oh, man, this is there's a whole lot more going on here than I originally thought.
1: Well, you were talking about the male gaze aspect, which, you know, we've talked about before on the Peeping Tom episode. But the thing I thought was interesting also when I was watching the film is that it also takes the her gaze and sort of how she – is looking at the world and how there was this aspect for me of her being like this kind of hunter or picking up these series of men and things like that. And just sort of how she views them and, and in that, and it is a disconnect. I mean, because she's not like the other women and there's a couple of scenes where she's around other women and you can tell that there's this, she doesn't know how to quote unquote act like they do. And so it's, it's sort of an interesting, um, both, philosophical through line but also sort of almost a, a mirroring or, um, or or a commentary on that whole idea of, of the gaze as you're talking about
0: I think the film, Rejects a lot of the male gaze, you know, but our friends at Horribly Hooch like to impose the male gaze. So it'll always be there, I guess, in some extent. What I think the film does is it does to a certain degree adopt the male gaze for a brief period as Scarlett Johansson enters the world and deduces, you know, this is how women dress. This looks sexy on someone. This is what makes a woman look attractive. So we see her applying lipstick, getting dolled up, getting that really sexy fur coat. We see her adorning herself with the emblems of the male gaze. But for everything that we see as an audience through her, it's, I think, actually a very feminine and female gaze, even just going back to the point that I made a bit earlier about the erect penis. I mean, you know, a lot of women have seen an erect penis coming at them. So it was nice that the camera kind of adopted that viewpoint as well. While we're
3: watching her looking at the world, and you called her Laura, I don't know if she necessarily has a name in the film. I think Laura comes from our readings of it. Laura was one of the the names that she was given in the screenplay. And Laura obviously is a lot easier than female or, you know, I don't even think that they give character names when the credits roll. And in the book she was Icerly or Isserly, but we can call her Laura f- for now. And that kind also helps me remember Laura Palmer a little bit, which is uh, always mm-hmm. a fun thing with Laura. She has a definite set of criteria when she's looking at men. And it's really so much of this first part of the film, us trying to, or at least me trying to figure out what her criteria is because she is on the move, Trying to pick up these different guys in her van, she seems to have some rules around it. And it is interesting to kind of suss out what those rules are. Like, she wants men to be alone. She would prefer them to be without a girlfriend or family, maybe even without a job. And just, you know, trying to find these guys, people that aren't there with their friends, easy pickings for her to. Take these guys off of the streets of Glasgow, off the side of the A9, this kind of stuff, and not have them missed, which to me completely flips that whole thing that we usually have when it comes to men hunting women. We have seen all three of us have seen so many films about men hunting women. And this time we finally get to see a woman hunting a man and we don't get just like, you know, in like a Henry portrait of a serial killer, we don't get an internal monologue. We don't get, anybody that she's bouncing stuff off of she barely speaks to anybody other than her potential victims so we don't necessarily get her point of view as far as this is what i'm looking for so we have to live along with her we have to live vicariously which kind of puts us in that same seat as far as we are on the hunt with her
0: the first time I saw it in theaters, both me and, and my friend, who's also a woman, picked up very immediately on the fact that she was deducing if anyone would miss these guys. And if a flag went up that someone would miss them, she moved directly on. And, you know, for me as a woman, um, you know, out and about in the world, it's, you know, whenever I go on a date, whenever, um, you know, I meet someone at a bar, I almost always kind of reference, I have a friend or I have to go home to my roommates or I pretend that my parents are calling me, you know, we try to of construct this world so that uh, there's a series of securities in place for us so that someone will miss us if we're gone. We're not worth, you know, taking or messing with. But it's interesting to see the flip of that, the gender reversal where these men, you know, if, if they meet her criteria, they are so happy to go bounding into this dark, creepy house with her.
3: Yeah, that's one of her biggest advantages is that men generally think with their penises, as our friends <laughs> at Horribly Cooched have proven, and they are just the rare person who hesitates to go along with this woman.
1: Well, there was—I remember—I got interested in trying to find her writings and then reading her writings after I saw um, I shot Andy Warhol. And it was the Valerie Solana Scum Manifesto. And I remember there was a line in there that said that a man will wade through a river of snot and shit to get to the other side if there's a woman, you know, a friendly woman who's, you know, waiting for them sexually. And I think a lot of these guys sort of fit that bill. And, you know, the whole thing with them going into the liquid, I actually thought maybe that was some sort of form of alien sex or something. I was trying to figure out exactly exactly. What was going on with that? I was like, okay, that's how aliens do it, I guess. (laughs) It might sound weird.
3: No, if you want to see that, you have to watch Cocoon. That's how (laughs) aliens have sex. (laughs) So, yeah, which brings us to the next part of our horribly hooched review here that says, Cut to the female wearing the dead woman's clothes, driving the van around the seedier neighborhoods of Glasgow, Scotland. She flirts with and picks up a young man, drives him back to her house. As soon as they get to the house, the female begins stripping down to her black bra and panties, walking into a large, dark room. Just out of reach of the randy young man, who also begins to strip off his clothes, several of the male victims become totally nude, and we get... To- Way too many full cock frontal nudity shots, testicle shots, and bunghole angles. So sorry, not a big fan of the testicle and bunghole and cock shots. Though, as you said, Alexandra, that was refreshing to see full frontal male nudity as well as female nudity.
0: We simply don't get to see it a lot. So, you know, it's a little little something for the girls. Now we know it's up there in Glasgow.
1: Look, I don't want to see naked guys in a movie. If I want to see a naked guy, I'll just get naked.
3: If I want to see a naked guy, I'll watch Wild Things, so I can see (laughs) Kevin Bacon's huge piece of bacon going on there. (laughs)
2: There's a big problem in Hollywood today. In so many films and TV shows, we see gratuitous female nudity. And that's not okay. Well, it's okay, but it's not fair to actresses. And it's not fair to actors because we want to be naked too. It's time to free the bacon. And by bacon, of course, I mean your wiener, your balls, and your butt. I actually have a nude scene in every film I'm in. I put it in my contract, full frontal, and they take them out. They say, Kevin, you don't need to be naked in this. Does it make sense? Kevin, it's an animated film. You're in a voiceover booth. Please put on your pants. Kevin, you're not even in this movie. Why are you here and why are you naked? I was naked in Frost Nixon. And guess what? They CGI'd pants on me. My dog Skip. The only naked character was a dog, which is great, but not enough. sore subject, but the following didn't have a single shot of my penis, and now it's canceled. Surprise, surprise. So what can you do to help? use the hashtag free the bacon and tweet out a picture of your genitals immediately no
3: nope. the young man cannot catch up with the female and soon he seems euphoric seemingly unaware that he is beginning to sink into a gelatinous black liquid the female stands in her underwear emotionless watching the man sink silently into the tar-black floor going down fast like alien quicksand after the man sinks completely below the floor and into the black jello Body, he is still conscious and does not seem to drown. After a moment, she tires of watching and gets dressed to go out and repeat her seductive entrapment. I really like these scenes in this black room of her walking backwards, that music, that incredible score playing and these men just kind of waiting in and they never seem to have any kind of look of shock on their faces or was I just missing that? I think
1: that whole scene to me, um, those that happen, they don't seem real. They seem to be, they seem to be more symbolic. Like I said, um, like, I I think that's what might be happening in reality that they're being trapped in this liquid or something like that. But I get the feeling that that is her eyes of what's happening versus if there was another layer of reality on it, it would be them in a traditional like room, like a bedroom and they're naked and there's all of this stuff. Like for for some reason, this feels like like the symbolic underpinnings of the world and not the world itself. Um, All of those scenes seem really, not playing in in the larger reality because those guys don't react in the way people would react like i think that if i was in a room like that i'd be like whoa and then i would be freaking out if i started to sink into this ooze i'd be like what the hell's going on i'd like be fighting i'd be trying to walk back the other way it's just it it's it staged really well it's very artfully done but like i said i don't i don't see that as as a realistic interpretation of the reality
0: Well, the only man who does kind of figure out that something's going on or something's not right is the young man with the facial disfigurement. He seems to be unsure and uh, worried and concerned about what's going on. And, you know, that's the one that Laura, in this case, really has to work to get him to kind of submerge fully. But I really like those scenes very much because it plays into several of my other favorite moments in the film, which I think really showcase Scarlett Johansson's star quality, if you will, when, you know, she's talking to a young man on the street or she's walking backwards. She's giving them that come hither look and stripping. And, you know, then they either get in a cab or they leave or, you know, they submerge into the black liquid. And within a second, her face drops, goes to blank. And she just walks back over and picking up her clothes like on to the next. It's another day at the office. It's I, I like that kind of banality of it.
3: I should probably not say it this way. I want to say it's such a simple effect, but it's so effective. Mm -hmm. It probably wasn't a simple effect as far as, like, you know, the guys who actually were there with the computers and doing all this malarkey and all this kind of, you know, hoodoo voodoo with special effects. But from a viewpoint of a viewer, it's a simple thing watching these guys sink into this blackness. And then watching her walk right across it, it's completely solid for her. And yeah, to your point, just completely banal onto the next thing. But just that, that her walking back over the, the black floor and being in this completely black space, I mean, it is just such an effective look. So we go back to Mr. Horribly Hooched. We are the reluctant ride-along as the female picks up several more young men and feeds them to the fucking insatiable floor.
1: Can we talk about the van real quick? The van is very clinical. It's this white van, and it's sort of cutting through these dark streets and everything. And I saw the van as sort of a stand-in for the traditional idea of the spaceship in a sci-fi film, sort of how it's used in that manner.
3: I can totally see that, especially when we see her... Without that van later on, she's very much like a turtle outside of her shell. She is completely vulnerable when she's not inside of that van. And really, we should talk about the van as far as the way that this movie was shot using surreptitious cameras that are capturing the actress Scarlett Johansson acting as Laura, picking up these men, and everything being caught. On camera from these different angles, so they can be cut together and shown to us later on. I mean, she is taking chances as an actress, but moreover, she's taking a lot of chances as a human being because you don't know what these guys are going to do, what they're going to say. I mean, forget if they're violent or not, they could just, you know, not be interesting su- uh, subjects for the camera. But The way that they shot this, the way that they edited it, the people that they found for the final cut of the film. I mean, in all my reading, I know that there were a lot of people that didn't work out. A lot of people that wouldn't sign releases when they found that they were being in a movie. I'm not sure how many people that was, though. And I don't know of all of the people that we see her seduce in the film. I know a couple of them were actors or you know kind of plants beforehand such as the disfigured man that you just mentioned alexandra but i don't know what the shooting ratio was when it comes to how many people they tried to get and how many people ended up in the film
0: the use of you know either real men on the streets or the plants it added an incredible level of reality to it which you really don't get to see in the science fiction genre like at all. It's incredibly, incredibly rare to have that. So to have that tactile feeling, that knowledge as an audience member, because when I first saw it, I really didn't know about the nudity nor did I really care, but what I'd heard about was, you know, there's a good first chunk of the film where she's just talking to strangers, and not only you know, as you were just saying, Mike, is that incredibly scary to do just as a person, but to do it as a famous actress in disguise and do it on film, so there is always a record of it. That's, you know, You're playing with some really risky things there, but I like that because, you know, you have those thick regional accents, you know, you don't hear that in a lot of Hollywood or even a lot of British films, really. So it really evens out the film in this kind of high-minded, you know, black liquid room to the streets of Glasgow. I like that discrepancy there. And the other thing with the van is
3: we've seen Jamie Gum, aka John Grant, pick up women in uh, Silence of the Lambs. And the van is usually, you know, the murder weapon, kind of, uh, when it comes to serial killers and just having a good place where you can kind of disarm a person and have them tied up or bound or whatever. And it was nice that, again, here we have this woman driving this vehicle rather than a man and her in this capacity trying to pick these guys up. And like I said, I would be very curious to know just how many of these guys were fresh off the streets because there's a few seduction scenes. We have a few things going on inside of the van. We have one seduction scene that's inside of a nightclub. But I think the majority of them take place inside of this van and her just kind of asking for directions or, you know, starting, starting to chat up these people. And like you're saying, uh, Alexandra, she's this. Famous Hollywood actress, you know, she was in so many movies just in this particular year that the film was being made. She'd been in movies since she was a kid. You know, I remember first seeing Scarlett in, I think, Ghost World, but she was even in stuff before that. So I like the whole idea of this actress can put on a wig, dye her hair, whatever it is. I don't know if it's a wig or a dye job. She can put on an accent, and it's just so not of this world that a famous Hollywood actress can be cruising around the streets of Glasgow. I mean, it's probably different for you being in Toronto where they shoot a lot of things and you probably see every once in a while, somebody on the street where you're like, Oh, that's so-and-so. Oh, Mm -hmm. look at, you know, this person is here. You, you talked about Tiff before, so it's not an unusual thing to be walking down the street and be like, Oh, there's Marilyn Manson on the other side of the street
0: the year that this premiered at TIFF or, or I think it got its North American maybe premiere at TIFF I was actually working at TIFF and I was leaving the office you know late one night because it was the festival and so everyone was staying really late and I was leaving and I was just trying to get home and I love the festival it's, it's a terrific terrific place and I was just leaving and I was so tired and I crossed the street and it was the Don Juan premiere uh, at, at one of the big theaters in Toronto and so Jor- uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Scarlett Johansson were doing the red carpet so as I was leaving people we were just screaming her name just scarlett and i was like oh my god fuck you guys i need to like get to the streetcar <laughs> and go home god damn it scarlett johansson but yeah so it's you know it's very strange to think a woman who could incite these you know seemingly normal people to just scream her name is just cruising on the streets of glasgow
3: cruising down the streets going in in the mall going into the clubs it sounds like
0: jersey shore
3: did anybody recognize her or was she just so far out of her element that no one would even think that that could possibly be her. So let's go back to the review here. At one point we see two of them. These are the um, guys that she picks up floating with their pricks dangling as their bodies (laughs) seem to evaporate or get ingested, leaving only their skin to dance a liquid undulating ballet of death. Now I thought I only saw one guy kind of get digested Mm -hmm. and it was this interesting moment for me where we have these two guys under this black goo and i was curious whether they knew each other were there but the one seems to reach out and it's the one moment of tenderness and human compassion that i kind of see in this film and it's right before the person that he's touching kind of loses everything but his skin just floating in this blackness was that the same kind of experience that you guys had or was i just reading wrong into this
1: i think there was only really one other part of of human compassion i saw in there and then that was at the beach i guess we can talk about that later
3: Well, yeah, we can go right into that. The scenario is identical each time. She drives around for what seems eternity, spies a likely, lusty loser, seduces him, drives him back to the house, gets the guy inside, strips down to her black underwear, and lures them into the feeding room. I guess feeding room is a good term for it. Cut to a family swimming in the waves of a lagoon at a cold-looking beach on the coast. The female is walking alone along the sand looking for fresh meat. She approaches a young man who is taking care of an infant while his wife is out in the surf with another older child. She strikes up a non-conversation but the seduction is cut short by the screaming for help from the wife. The husband immediately leaps into the water and swims to his wife. The female stands arrogantly ignorant of the dynamics of the situation. The infant begins to cry pitifully. The female does not notice it. She stands there for for a very long six minutes, soon the cries of the family stop. The husband's body washes up near the beach. The female wades in
1: and drags the man's body up the beach. Was that really the husband? No. I
3: thought that there was yet another guy there. No,
1: she got it all. they got it all wrong. It's a guy in a wetsuit, and he's out, and he's there from Czech Republic or something. Because right. he asks, well, where are you from? She's like, I'm from Czech Republic. And it's like, well, what are you doing here? You know, it seems like a weird place to vacation. And then the family's down the beach and then the wife gets like sucked out into the water. The husband swims in after her. the guy in the wetsuit goes in after him, pulls him out, and then he goes back in to get his wife. And then the, the guy in the wetsuit ends up like washing up on the shore. He's all like um, like worn out. He's still alive, though. He's like all worn out, though. And then she picks up a rock and bashes him in the head while the kid's screaming. So he he totally misses that there's there's actually a single guy and then there's a family. There's two different things going on on that beach.
0: Yeah, and... For that single guy, there's like, he's like half interested in Scarlett Johansson. He's the one that kind of seems the most standoffish with her. Um, you know, why do you want to know? What do you care? That kind of attitude. And the second he hears screaming, he goes running. Like that guy, you know, tears into save that family, which he almost does. But, you know, the compassion that we feel within humanity, and I'm sure if we had any loved ones ourselves in, you know, a terrible, perilous situation, we'd run without thinking. And I think that's what we see in this scene you know, so even though the man gets dragged back, he can't leave his wife. And I think even their dog is out there. You know, he can't can't let that dog die. You know, so, so he runs back in. And, you know, unfortunately, later we learn he drowns.
3: And that shot of the infant there screaming and the woman, Laura, just has no compassion whatsoever. Just, you know, you hear an infant crying. The first thing you want to do is comfort. And she has none of that. But I think this might be the moment where her facade starts to crack a little bit. This might be that introduction of humanity into this alien character. So I definitely see a lot of stuff happening with this scene. And this scene, to me, is very interesting because we'll talk about later on the evolution of the script and the story. And this scene seems to be kind of universal amongst all of these. It's not... Necessarily um, in the book, but it's definitely in the screenplays, and this is the moment where we can see Laura start to change a little bit. Even though she does, you know, dispatch this guy, this Czech guy. Pretty quickly. And apparently the floor is okay ingesting somebody who's either unconscious or what was kind of missing from this was him waking up and her, you know, explaining what had happened or lying about it and then taking him back to the killing floor. It's an interesting moment because then we do get an echo of that child screaming shortly thereafter. There's another kid in a car that we hear screaming and kind of brings her back to that moment
0: but we even see the baby again you know like time has passed and the bicycle, uh, the motorcycle man comes back to the beach to you know collect some of Laura's belongings which she's left behind to kind of clean up the scene a bit and we see that the baby is still screaming and crying on the beach and the tide seems to be like coming closer and closer to the baby and uh, and then he just walks away same as Laura it's strange to say that this scene made me kind of fall in love with the movie because i love when films elicit a reaction in me that that I didn't even know I had like the second the motorcycle man walked away from the baby and it's still screaming and crying. I remember thinking to myself, well, pff, least he could have done was kill that baby. And then I was like, Oh, oh my God,
1: <laughs> my read on it when I first looked at it, and then I looked at the scene again, sort of through another pair of eyes after I watched it was the first view to me was she's been picking up all these single guys. So I was looking at it as, okay, I I don't quite know at this point what the whole premise is to this point. Because this is early in. This is like, what, 20, 30 minutes in? So we're still trying to kind of make sense of who this person is and what what they're on about. Like, originally I was watching it through the eyes of plot, and then I realized it's not really plot in that way. And at first I thought, okay, um, the guy goes in to save the family, and then... The guy ends up washing up on the shore, who's the single man, and then she beats him over the head with a rock, which to me is just this whole idea that, at least in her world, the value is as a single man, but the idea of domesticity is horrible. And don't even like consider domesticity if you're around me in any way. Don't even consider... Kids don't consider family don't consider of that it was like the most sort of like a radical feminist um, statement that I could think of at the moment. And then I go, is that the correct reading? I'm not sure that's really what he's saying in that scene. But for a minute, I thought, well, that's interesting. Maybe that is what he's saying.
0: I'm actually, I'm not sure. I like, I think that's a very interesting reading, but um, I think more so it's that domesticity in a family serves no value to her. I mean, seemingly she just needs to harvest man meat and so the idea of a man with attachments and you know a baby and a wife or you know and a dog it it plays no role in her world so it's almost like um you know in in the terminator when he's sussing out a room and he's like no threat no threat no threat uh actual threat or this person is something i need i kind of feel like she almost has that vision where you know she's you know single guy that's a guy i need that's a guy i need and then when she sees a group it's like oh i don't need them
3: The Motorcycle Man. You mentioned him. We mentioned him at the very beginning of the conversation as the guy who brings out the possible former um, Scarlett Johansson-type character, the former Laura. He just kind of hangs around the edges most of the time, but he has such a great threat to him because we don't necessarily get any kind of interactions with him. He... I guess he could be – I don't know. He's not necessarily the villain of the piece, but he definitely carries a lot of menace to him. And we see him just kind of tearing ass around these roads in Scotland, these really kind of treacherous (laughs) roads sometimes. And, yeah, he's there for her, but we don't necessarily ever get the relationship between what – they do together but he seems to be kind of her cleanup man.
1: It's only kind of at the end that I get the feeling that he was some sort of partner maybe of hers and cuz there's that shot at the end where he's kind of waiting and I I got the feeling that he was waiting for her to show up. They were supposed to meet at some place and maybe they were supposed to leave when all the events of the end happen.
0: See, I think he was just sent to monitor her because the only interaction they really have is How I see it is him looking at her, him observing her, making sure, you know, she looks attractive or looks like a woman. And I I think, you know, that scene that you were just talking about at the end there, Rob, is, you know, that's the only time or that's one of the few times we see him off his motorbike. And it's like he stopped because he knows that she's no longer with us and he just has to turn back or grab her body and go wait for the new one to show up.
3: Let's continue on with Horribly Hooch. This might be the most painful other than that opening paragraph this might be the most painful thing for me to read in here cut to her picking up what looks like a circus freak a young man with elephant man facial deformities neurofibromatosis now this is different we say to ourselves what kind of kinky shit will this alien bitch get into now she of course can barely discriminate the difference in each young man and does not seem to be able to tell that this guy is fucking way different than the others this time she gets completely naked and so does he but this time she does not let the young man completely sink into the tar alien goo she seems to rescue him and sends him out of the the house naked this person was not a pickup Like, this was not a happenstance. This was somebody that was set up, and he actually kind of contributed to the scene as far as what should Scarlett Johansson say in this instance, what should Laura say in order to kind of seduce his character. And this, for me, is one of the more touching moments of the film, and this really kind of hits to that whole idea of the title. You know, we we can interpret the title of Under the Skin quite a few ways. But for me, this really kind of speaks to the whole idea of under the skin, we're all the same. So it doesn't necessarily matter what's going on on the surface. And him talking about how he only goes out to shop at night because people will try to wind him up. I Just this scene really did it for me.
1: Well, I saw him as alien as she is alien. She recognized that he has the same problems that she has underneath in terms of inability to connect in a way And this is where I saw her as is finally coming across as maybe she does want some sort of connection. And it isn't just about collecting these guys in some way, like some sort of, you know, serial killer that she was actually looking to make some sort of connection. It was this guy who doesn't look like everybody else who does have these issues is much more emotional and humane than everyone else is, who, of course, has the more beautiful surface.
0: Yeah, I think it's it's such a lovely scene in the midst of a, a very strange movie. And I like that they both connect through their conversation. And, you know, Glazer obviously knows uh, to tell us that this is a very important scene. and he's probably the most important man, really, in the film, in my opinion. And, he, you know, Glazer gives him all these little touches, like, uh, you know, the, the camera cuts, and, and we see him kind of pinching his hand, like pinching himself, to make sure this isn't a dream Uh, after she propositions him. There's a real kind of naivete, but it's not, but there's, you know, a lot of, hurt and resentment behind that as well that he's hiding behind and it's it's a very humanistic scene and it's lovely that you know a man who felt who felt rejected by society and a woman who is not of this society could connect at least seemingly on a surface level
3: and he's the guy who seems to be the most resistant to her i don't know for lack of a better term charms just him when (laughs) she drives him along a little bit and he just says This isn't the Tesco. (laughs) You haven't driven me to where I asked you to drive me. And he sounds a little bit annoyed. I appreciate that because he probably gets people fucking with him all the time. Because, obviously, he shops at night because people are going to wind him up. And he doesn't need this kind of shit. So I really appreciate that. He... He comes across definitely as the most human of all of her victims.
0: Yeah, and it's it's such a oh fuck it's such a gut punch when um you know he he makes it through the field he's like this kind of lost babe and he's making his way to his little like cul de sac home and the second he like crosses into his own backyard boom the motorcycle man shows up it was you know it was a really heartbreaking moment to watch I remember it was it was really hard. Back to our our friend Mr. Hoocht.
3: The female is somehow confused, out of sorts. It is as if being around humans pretending to be human has fucked with her alien mind. She walks out of the house, coatless, heading a different direction from the stumbling, wandering, naked freak. And about that time, the companion alien pulls up in a car, stuffs the nude freak into it, and drives off, searching for the female. So that's kind of the scene that you just talked about, but definitely with a lot more emotion and gravitas than we're getting from Mr. Hooched over here. So yeah, this seems to be the breaking point for her as far as, you know, we've had the baby crying, we had the other baby crying in the car, we have picking up this guy, and this is the guy that she lets go. This is the moment where she is breaking protocol, and now she's kind of moving out on her own. Robbie mentioned the van. She's out of the van now. She is just going, and she's trying her best to be human. And the next scene for me is really important, too, Cut to the female sitting in a diner with a piece of cake in front of her. <laughs> I love this guy. This, 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 <laughs> this, this review is amazing. How the fuck she paid for the pastry was not addressed. Maybe she took the money from her victims. Just another puzzling piece of this celluloid conundrum. The incongruity of the placement of this scene made me smile. Let the bitch eat cake, I thought. Wow this guy' is awesome she observes humans eating their food so she attempts to eat the cake but chokes but it chokes her so she spits it out no one notices
1: really like so this guy like if a movie takes place over I don't know like several days like he's upset that people don't go excuse me I have to go to the bathroom at some <laughs> point like really like come on you know this isn't Verite cinema
3: right. We don't see her open a wallet. We don't see her get a paycheck. That's again. it. I'm
1: totally checked out. I'm totally checked <laughs> out now. And She didn't pay for that cake. Yeah.
3: We don't see her waiting in line yeah. at the bank, yeah, queuing exactly. up and yeah. trying to get her. Yeah. We don't know that she's on the dole. She's got a British accent, so she could be on the dole. I don't know.
0: And also, one of the other patrons totally sees her cough at the piece of cake. That's what I thought, too.
3: Yes. Oh man. Yeah. This is very spotty when it comes to accuracy, (laughs) (laughs) but this is the moment for me. This is when she is trying her best to be human and it just doesn't work. She knows that people eat and she cannot eat kind of going back to the idea of the elephant man, and I'm not calling the character the elephant man, I'm talking about the actual movie The Elephant Man by David Lynch there's that whole thing in there where uh, John is trying to sleep like a regular person and that's ultimately what is his undoing, that's what kills him, and for me this is kind of similar as far as she knows what people do and she's trying her best to become a person at this point unable to do it she can't eat like a person and there's so much of this movie that we're not seeing which is all about food so we'll talk about that more later on but for this we don't necessarily need that we just need this as her attempt to be human and to be like us and to eat this piece of delicious cake let the bitch eat cake you thought <laughs> really that's what you thought <laughs> my god Cut to the female wandering down a rural lane, stopping at a crossroads where there is another store and a bus stop. A middle-aged man watches her. She shivers. He watches for about 12 minutes. I don't know if it's 12 <laughs> minutes or not. Watches, I didn't time the scene.
1: He watches her for about 12 hours.
3: <clears throat> but if Horribly Hooch says it was 12 minutes, then it has to be 12 minutes. Then he goes over, introduces himself, asks her if she needs some help cut to the man taking the female home to his apartment he cooks and wasn't there a whole bus scene in here that i'm missing or is that later on
1: he's on the bus there's a whole bus scene and then they go to the store and they buy groceries and then they go to his house and he makes dinner and they're watching tv and i have to admit that tv is horrible like whatever (laughs) show that he's watching (laughs) i'm just (laughs) like i understand the plight of the alien because i'm like i wouldn't watch that either
0: I think it's also important to note that when they're on the bus, it's not just the man like uh, the other man who's on the bus with her. It's also the bus driver who seems genuinely concerned for her. Like, do you have a coat? Are you okay? You know, it's showing her uh, that people are good and decent and care and try to connect with her. It's, you know, when she's not trying to put herself out there and flirt with them, it's it's quite an astonishing moment when she kind of it's you very Scarlett Johansson really does that, you know, can't not compute look very, very well.
1: And the bus driver is also telling the guy, you know, hey, why don't you leave her alone? You know, come on, you know, back up. Don't get so close. Like, you know, leave the lady alone, you know, because <laughs> he's kind of looking over his shoulder at them. And he's like, I don't like the look of that guy.
3: Yeah. Again, some human compassion going on here. She, Maybe now that she's not in the van, she's kind of seeing what life can be like a little bit you know it's not all of these kind of creeps that she's picking up you know she saw from the last guy they're not all creeps and i wouldn't say necessarily that the early guys that she picked up are creeps maybe the guy at the dance club he seemed a little creepish to me maybe that's just me Cut to the man taking the female home to his apartment. He cooks dinner for her, but she just stares at the food. How does she get sustenance, I wondered. Maybe she goes home, pulls out a strange alien metal silver straw, and sucks up a meal from the black gelatin floor enriched from the many cocks it has dissolved. This guy is cock crazy. Out on the balcony, when Reginald kissed Diana's lips, her knees went weak. Slowly, he pulled her top down, exposing her soft, unyielding breasts. Oh yeah, now this is getting good. Just the sight of those breasts made Reginald's penis very hard. His penis was of considerable size, and now beads of sweat ran slowly down his penis, making it glisten like a strong swimmer fresh from out of the pool. It was a fantastic penis that seemed as strong as a horse's leg, yet as delicate as a flower wrapped in silk. What a grand, grand penis. Diana's nipples, uh, let's see, Diana's nipples, oh, writer's block, writer's block, she hasn't really said jack shit this whole time, he probably figures she is traumatized by something, and perhaps he's correct, later that night she stands naked in front of a mirror and examines her alien body in the glass, this is probably Mr. Hooch's favorite part of the film, (laughs) because we get a lot of Scarlett Johansson being naked in front of a mirror, But to me, again, this is her coming to grips with herself. You know, this to me is one of the more poignant moments of the film. Her examining herself, seeing herself as one of these creatures that she has been kind of, you know, preying upon. Is she one of them or is she something else? And she's trying to kind of come to terms with it. At least that was my interpretation of it. The next day he takes her to a ruined castle. They wander around. She doesn't talk. He kisses her. She allows it, and almost resonates as a lame Hallmark moment. He takes her back to the apartment. He pulls off her pants and panties, shucks his britches, and climbs aboard. Uh. Wow. This is such a wonderful scene, and this guy just boils it down to pornography. You
0: know, Mrs. Hooch is a really lucky woman.
1: (laughs) I bet she's on Hooch if she has to deal with (laughs) Mr. Hooch. (laughs) If he has a Mrs. Hooch, yeah.
3: I hope she doesn't read his website. (laughs) Speaking of she, she has no idea what is going on, so she pushes him off, staring blankly at him while she fingers the vagina that he was working so hard to stick his dick into, or at least a hole where the cunt should be. Disgusted at her rebuke, the man gets up and leaves.
0: No, that's not how it happened. That is not how it happened. I think she is enticed and attracted to this man who's seemingly good and kind. Um, I you know, my heart certainly fluttered a little bit when they were going uh, the second day to the castle to look at the ruins and they're about to cross a puddle and he just like picks her up. Um, there's something very chivalrous and romantic about that. But he's also a very quiet and a very contained man. And I think when, you know, he looks at her and kisses her, there's a lot of tenderness. And that when they do begin to have sex, it's seemingly as far as Laura knows, it's it's consensual. She's interested. She's wants to be a part of it. And then when he he does try to penetrate her. It's like he can't quite get in. And I read the moment where she jumps up frightened. It's the back end, let's say, to the cake scene. It's like the cake couldn't go down her mouth. Now, you know, nothing else can go up down there. So, you know, she's realizing the limitations and that she is, in fact, just skin. The humanity is you know, uh, physically, certainly skin, skin deep, and her running away, you know, the man looks frightened and concerned for her, because he likes her. And her running away is, you know, shame and humiliation and being scared. It's it's not all this, you know, crazy stuff Hooch is talking about. It's a really, you know, human moment. Um, You know, it, for lack of a better term, it really gives a lot of weight to fear of intimacy.
3: Yeah, her jumping up, Grabbing that lamp, you know, the, the, uh, I can't remember if she removes the cover from the lamp or if it falls off, and her just using that and looking at herself and trying to see what's going on down there. Just, it's such a strong moment to me. And it is, yeah, the, the confusion, the fear, all of these things going on. It is definitely not this little moment of pornography that Mr. Hooch has kind of boiled it down to. And, yeah, I didn't necessarily see the – I don't remember the guy getting up and leaving. I remember her leaving. She goes out in the forest. She's wearing a a rain slicker. The one he gives her. Yeah, he's been trying to take care of her. I remember when they are going grocery shopping, she's wearing a coat. And so she finally has a coat to wear. And, yeah, he's been very, very kind to her and really kind of showing her this flip side of – what her day-to-day was earlier on in the film. But then she, unfortunately, gets to see that horrible side of humanity because she goes off into the forest, and according to Mr. Hoot, she wanders around for a long eight minutes. I I didn't time this particular part, so I'm not sure if that's true or not. Until she meets a logger in a yellow slicker. They make small talk, and she asks if there's a shelter in the woods that she could stay at for the night. He tells her about a logger's cabin a mile up or so the trail. They part, and she hikes to the cabin. Cut to a glorified workshed where she finds a canvas bed, takes shelter, and goes to sleep. So I guess fucking aliens have to get their rim too. Wow, this guy's very concerned about aliens being paid (laughs) and sleeping and eating, but okay. Suddenly in the morning, she is awakened by the balding, overweight, lusty logger who begins to molest her. And this is one of the more terrifying scenes to me in the entire film. Uh, She fights him off and runs into the dark forest with him in pursuit. He catches her, pins her to the ground, taking off her coat and blouse. She squirms around until her back is to him. He gets rough with her, and suddenly the skin her whole back splits open. Then the skin on her shoulder splits open and we see the black flesh underneath it. The logger loses his trouser log. I don't get that. Gets up, seems pretty freaked out, and runs off. We watch as a jet black bald alien peels off the damaged skin of the human it borrowed it from. It is examining the head, staring into the dead eyes of Miss Johansson. When the logger returned with a five-gallon gas can, and soaks the black bitch down with petroleum, then lights her on fire. Roll end credits, and we try to figure this shit out.
1: It's not that hard to figure out. Not too hard. I'm not good with symbolism. I guess is no. the uh, <laughs> the subtext of Mister Hooch's uh, review. I don't understand symbolism. Don't try with abstract ideas with me. Like money, like what it's that all about? <laughs> like I, I trade these things that are the equivalent of some other thing, and therefore I get things with it. I, I I'm amazed he can handle money.
5: Your world frightens and confuses me. He
3: might go out with a note pinned to his his vest every day. <laughs> I'm probably you gonna get know?
1: I'm probably gonna get death threats from Mr. Hooch because I'm <laughs> I'm going off on it. But seriously, I mean, they, they, this guy should not be reviewing film unless he's just trying to review plots. And if he can review plots. Then maybe he should just do two lines and write them up for TV Guide, which is, I guess, now defunct, because that's about all this guy seems to be able to do. He has no idea of what he's dealing with in terms of symbolic and metaphor and all that other stuff. So, you know, it sounds like it was written by a drunk 14 year old.
0: Well the sad thing is is that I think that he thinks he's being very funny with this and it's you know it's just cringeworthy and not in the awful dad joke way he's like a guy at the at the end of the bar at the end of the night that you're just trying to avoid that's it and he's terrible
1: It would be like okay I'll give you an equivalent here it would be like if the guy played by is it Sam McMurray in um... Raising Arizona, who tells the bad jokes to Nick Cage, it would be like if he was writing film review. See,
2: hey, that reminds me. You hear about the person in the Polish Persuasion? He walks into a bar and got this big old pile of shit in his hand, and he says, Hey, look what I almost stepped in!
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly, that guy. He's not funny either. We get that echo of the
3: stripping of Scarlett Johansson. You know, we just saw it done so lovely so wonderfully the man who's been so kind to her you know as they're starting to make love and he is you know helping her take her clothes off and then we get the flip side just a few minutes afterwards apparently eight minutes afterwards since she's wandered around for eight minutes and all this kind of stuff we get the flip side where this guy who has, again, he was very kind to her when we saw him earlier in the film, uh, just a few minutes earlier. And then she goes and she sleeps and he wakes her up and, you know, is attacking her at this point. And then he is stripping her as well, but he is not doing it in the kind way. And he's stripping not only her clothes off, but then he starts to strip the skin off and. I like the way that he looks down at his hands and we don't even necessarily get a shot of what's on his hands, but he looks at his hands and then we cut back to her and it takes us a minute to realize what is going on and seeing her black flesh underneath the skin and the way that she's able to kind of peel out of this flesh. And then the way that she turns her own face to herself And Scarlett Johansson's eyes are still, you know, he says that they're the dead eyes of Miss Johansson, but they're not dead eyes. They're looking at herself, and they're blinking. Again, this simple effect, and just so powerful. Her looking at herself, her as this alien creature looking back at this visage of what she was like as a person. She is just completely you know, out of sorts at this moment, has no idea what to do now. I don't know where she would go had this asshole not come back and doused her with gasoline and set her on fire. Horrible, horrible, horrible images of her running through this forest on fire. And again, I think it's completely soundless. Like, I don't think she even screams during this part. You would think that she would just, you know, let go with some sort of, like, scream from, you know, John Carpenter's The Thing or something. But she just goes and collapses, and, you know, we see the smoke rising and the snow falling, and we do get that shot of the motorcycle man waiting for her. You know, you talked about that before, I think, Rob. And, you know, we get that moment and we know that she's not able to come back to him. And again, we end with that beautiful shot of the snow coming down, and it's just its so beautiful, but so horrifying at the same time that we spent so much time with this character, and now she has just lost her life in this horrible, horrible attack.
1: Well, that um, the snow falling, I also saw possibly as ashes as well. I thought maybe that, that's what it was the the other thing with um, with the attack that reminded me of another theme that we could get in this which is not to say that the alien in here is um, is an innocent I don't see the alien as an innocent uh, obviously doesn't understand uh, humanity's good or ills. But um, I had this feeling of, you know, we destroy what we don't understand. And that was the whole idea of him, you know, dousing her and lighting her on fire was, I don't know what this is, but it's got to die, whatever it is.
0: Well, I really love the way they set up that entire finale, Um, you know, from the moment she encounters him, you know, in that forest, it really is a mirror image from the beginning of the film where she's picking up the men. And as she's running through the forest, she just has kind of a, you know, a sloppy coat on and her hair is matted, and she's running, and she's worried, and she doesn't seem like she knows where she's going. She's wandering aimlessly. And this guy, this, like, fucked-up guy, like, picks her out like a mark. You know, I'm telling her where to go. I think I know where to find her later. She doesn't seem all that concerned about who she's with or if she's going to meet anyone. So, you know, he is able to kind of pick her, and in the same way that, you know, the men in the beginning of the film were consumed by the black glue for... Um, you know, the earth consumes her. And, you know, as I think, Rob, as you were saying, I think the uh, snow mirroring ashes falling down is incredibly apt. There's something so solemn and quiet and still. And, you know, the score by Mika Levy, which we've talked about a bit, it's so evocative. It's so beautiful. But in these moments, it's just silence. We're just kind of left with our own feelings. And it's it's uncomfortable and horrifying just to think about. I get chills thinking about it.
1: Actually made me tear up a little bit, so I'm sure Mister Hooch will use that against me as well when he finally gets around to listening to this episode. You know, because Mister Hooch, I actually have the ability for abstract thought.
0: But did you have to pay to get abstract thought?
1: Uh, no, it was it was gifted to me. Um, oh, okay. You know, yeah, you know, so uh, as as the leader of this outfit, you know. I have abstract thought. No, just kidding. Anyway, (laughs) you know, there's a thing called being human and that, uh, for good or ill gives you certain things such as abstract thought. Hopefully.
3: All right. We're going to take a break and play an interview with writer Alexander Stewart after these brief messages.
5: This is an imaginary podcast, which may never have happened. The short box showcase, but then again, may have about a father and daughter. I'm professor Allen.
4: And I'm Emily.
5: Who came from Ohio. And talked about comics:
4: Walking Dead, Tintin, Black Lightning,
5: White Tiger. It tells of their rise to glory, when the great guests were yet to be booked. Let's put it this way: Shogun Warriors wasn't going to win any Eisners, and the great feats of editing not yet performed. This is Ultra Seven. This is Ultraman Jack, and this is Ultraman Taro, and this is Ultraman Leo, and this of how they spoke at length.
4: This continuity is really the brainchild of nitpicking nerds the world over.
5: But to be fair, the best kind of confession is the Force Confession. And reviewed in brief tales that explore creatively the bounds of a given character's history.
4: Red Sun is wonderful with a very strange ending.
5: Of brilliant creators before their fall from grace. This is the era where Miller is at the height of his creative and artistic powers. And the ability of strong writing to encapsulate and transcend its time.
4: Flash of Two Earths by Gardner Fox.
5: This is an imaginary podcast. Aren't they all? Shortbox Showcase is part of the relatively geeky family of podcasts. Check us out on the web at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search on iTunes for relatively geeky or Shortbox Showcase. And remember, we're not experts,
4: we're just family.
5: Hey, I'm Joel. I'm Adam. We are what we like to call the Human Recommendation Engine. I'd like to recommend
2: that you listen to our new podcast, If You Like. If you like movies and TV as much as we do, you're going to want to listen to us because we've got some recommendations for you to check out. We've covered The Hunger Games, Breaking Bad, Cabin in the Woods, Walking Dead, The Exorcist, The Avengers, Tombstone, Mad Max, Firefly,
3: Rocky, and the hits just keep coming.
2: Check us out every Monday on iTunes or wherever you download your podcast, if you like.
4: And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com.
6: How did you get into film journalism? I originally was fascinated by... Science and animals, which uh, it's funny, kind of life comes full circle. We have about a dozen pets, <laughs> from dogs to a gecko to a lovebird who's seven, and uh, and all kinds of things, finches. And we live by Montrey Bay, which is an incredible um, source of marine life. You know, we swim and, and are surrounded by whales. Well, not surrounded by whales, but we've swum with a mother whale and her calf uh, probably about 500 meters from us. We've had seals close to us, you know, and... I, 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 my 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 aim is to train sea lions to um, serve margaritas in the ocean because I feel it will be a <laughs> a really you know useful <laughs> useful function. <laughs> but anyway, I I, I was fascinated and, and I was fascinated by science and wanted to be a vet. But then the, this was from an early age, or, or a marine biologist. That was the other thing. Um, probably when I was about seven or eight. And then I also loved cartoons and and especially cartoons and. I watched a lot of animal documentaries, such as they were when I was a kid. I wish they were like the ones my kids watch now because they 're amazing but you know i watched I watched a lot of animal documentaries and I started kind of moving towards oh, maybe I could make films about animals and then I started making little eight millimeter films, and the first film I made was about the life of Walt Disney. I learned from that the value of publicity, so the next film I made was complete, <laughs> completely different. It was about a, a, a girl who committed suicide based on a local case um, and who was kind of involved in the sex industry in London and, and, and got into drugs. But I, I took stills for that film, and I, I sent them to the newspapers in England and actually got a lot of press coverage. Then the BBC came to me and asked me to... Um, make a film for them while I was 17, which was pretty amazing. Um, and at the same time, I was writing to a film magazine and complaining about, you know, the rating system and how I wasn't legally allowed to see films, uh, though I was seeing them, <laughs> but, you know, how it was ridiculous that I could read the books the films were based on, but the, the rating system wouldn't allow me to see the films that were based on the books I loved so much. Clockwork Orange, for example, or, um, I don't know, Lord of the Flies, probably, and the, at the same time that the BBC asked me to make a film for them, the magazine Films and Filming asked me to write for them. And I became kind of like an associate editor on that. I, I helped the guy who ran them, edited the magazine, ran it from his apartment uh, or flat in London. He only worked at night. I was 17 or 18 and I kind of, started going up and spending nights up in london and then going back down on the six o'clock train and going to school completely wasted (laughs) like no sleep but i I learned how to put magazines together you know how to lay out pictures and how to write reviews and i started going to film festivals for them you know they flew me or various governments flew me to i went to iran i went to greece i went to Cannes. I, i went to san sebastian in spain um, I came over here and went to the um, you know, New York Film Festival, San Francisco. And it was just an incredible education in film and in life. And from there, I graduated to screenwriting. I mean, I had an agent at 18, which was pretty amazing. And I, I was already trying to write screenplays then. But it was a time, as as is often the case in Britain, of the British film industry being very depressed and short of cash and I got very frustrated. I was actually getting, pro- I was getting commissions where I was paid to write things, but they didn't get made. So then I decided I would try my hand at a book, and that actually did okay. And then I wrote a book called The War Zone about incest, which wound up being a Tim Roth film. And I became more of a novelist for a while. The War Zone took ten years to transition from book to novel, to- from book to film, with. Danny Boyle working on it for almost two years, and I mean me working with various directors and being commissioned every year to write scripts. And during that time, I also was I moved to America. I was also I was flying back and forth to L.A. from Miami, where I was living then, and I was working with Kiefer Sutherland on a film, um, which sadly didn't get made, but a film about soccer violence. So I, I kind of got lured into the film industry, and we moved to L.A because my wife also went to CalArts, where all the Pixar people come from. And I just, you know, got sucked into Hollywood, (laughs) which once you're in it, it's very hard to write books while you're working in Hollywood because you're always under deadline. And somehow, you know, books books in LA are kind of... I mean, people read books to see whether they can make a film or they read the coverage on books. (laughs) They don't really read the book. And actually taking novel writing seriously in L.A. I really admire the writers who managed to do it. You know, I love Raymond Chandra, for example. I, he, he's one of my favorite writers. And he also worked for the studios, I think, at times. And yet he still managed to write very well and write about L.A. Yeah, I mean, I kind of stumbled into it. And it was great because I, the magazine I worked for, Films and Filming, had it, it had a really strange reputation because I didn't really fully understand it at, you know, 17 or 18, but it, it turns out it had a sort of huge gay following. It had a kind of huge, it was part of a group of seven arts magazines, which the group was called seven arts that had nothing to do with the American company, seven arts, but they had films and filming plays and players, art and artists, music and musicians. I can't remember the others. I think the publisher whom I, I think I only met once the publisher, I think was gay. The editor never told me he was gay, but, um, Kind of looking back, I couldn't figure out that he was. But it had this kind of gay cult following. But it was also at the same time taken really seriously as a film magazine. So I would go to, you know, I'd be out on a location shoot uh, in the desert somewhere. And I'd have American journalists telling me, oh, I read your review. And and I was stunned that, you know, people I really respected had actually read my reviews. So it was a pretty cool way of, of you know getting exposure and, and learning to write and I did tons of interviews I interviewed every director and actor that I, I could that I loved so I, you know I met people like Robert Altman I met Nicholas Rogue through the magazine and I then wound up you know executive producing one of his movies which was I, I you know interviewed him once and and I saw this play and thought it could make a film and I called him up cold and said I don't know if you remember our interview but you know, would you come and see this play and he actually did and then we wound up becoming friends and you know I made the film and he made the film so it was it was a fantastic experience and and I think doing the interviews especially um, I feel in terms of my writing generally I used I used to transcribe the interviews from you know in those days it was a cassette recorder I still even working with the studios uh, or independents, whatever, I always digitally record everything. You know, now on an iPhone, usually with iTalk. But before that, I, I had tiny little digital recorders that could run for nine hours. So I would go to studio meetings and I would say, you know, can I record the meeting? And they were everyone was always fine about it. And it was great for me because I would take notes as well. But it was great because sometimes it's just a kind of nuanced comment that someone will make about, an aspect of a script or the film in general and just the way they say it or or you know the emotion in the voice or the point it comes out in the meeting is gives you a clue as to what people think and part of being a screenwriter you know is navigating through the morass of 10 different people trying to give you their opinions and you trying to you know stay true to your idea of what you wanted to do but also the director and the producers and the studio executives so I think I think the experience of doing the interviews and transcribing them helped enormously with that later on. And also the transcribing, especially because I interviewed a lot of American actors and directors, the transcribing I think helped me with American dialogue. You know, I learned the rhythm of American speech and I learned the kind of the the aha's and the likes and, you know, the the kind of words people use to help them pause when they're collecting their thoughts. So that was kind of a useful experience, too. It was great. I mean, I, I really enjoyed, you know, I, I, I love movers and, you know, I, I really have had a lot of fun at film festivals. Yeah, I was a judge at Sitges in Spain, um, which is kind of a horror, horror and fantastic film festival. And yeah. I just I just like seeing movies. Maybe less so now. Not that I like it less, but just having young children and wanting to spend as much time as possible with them, I just don't see as many movies as I did. But I watch a lot. You know, um, on anything I'll watch. I'll, I'll watch a movie on an iPhone. You know, I, to me it's like I can imagine the the sound and the size. I don't, I don't necessarily have to have the full. On uh, spectacle, although having said that, you know it's nice sometimes to see something in 3 d with a thundering sound system and i I'm super excited about the possibilities ultimately of, of virtual reality when it really really gets going. How did you get involved with under the skin Under the skin was an extraordinary experience for me in terms of getting involved and working on it in that I worked a lot with a British company called Film Four which is part of Channel 4 television in Britain. And essentially, Film 4, I think it wouldn't be an understatement to say they are the British film industry. I mean, there's them and there's Working Title. And I I know Tim Bevan and Sarah Ratcliffe pretty well who founded Working Title. And then Eric Fellner came on board. And Working Title has been hugely successful with Four Weddings and a Funeral movies like that. Film 4 has been hugely successful with everything from Danny Boyle's Train Spotting to Danny Boyle's um, Slumdog Millionaire. And I think they were involved in pretty much everything from Room with a View to The King's Speech. I I, I might be wrong on The King's Speech, but I'm pretty sure, you know, they're just, they are the major source or a major source, but probably the major source of British film financing. And they have had wonderful executives running it, Tessa Ross most recently, Paul Webster before that, David Orkin before him. And my book, The War Zone, which was a very difficult and challenging subject uh, of of kind of incest and adolescent morality, that became a Film 4 film under, I think David Orkin was actually involved originally, but essentially Paul Webster was the head of Film 4 when The War Zone got greenlit and made and everyone was very supportive and Tim Roth was directing and you know, Tim was kind of Oscar nominated at that time. And there was just huge, huge enthusiasm at Film 4 for the war zone. And Paul was very, very supportive of, of the film. And then when we went to Sundance and premiered at Sundance, you know, they rented an amazing house for us all and everyone came out, Paul came out, Paul Webster came out. Anyway, I, I think at some point, I was then doing more stuff with Film 4. I was going to executive produce and write something for them. And, you know, I've continued to do projects with them over the years. But around the time um, when Under the Skin started, which is a very long time ago, uh, I think around 2000, the year 2000, uh, Warzone was released, I think, in either 2000 or 1999, even I forget. Um, anyway, I was over in London for a meeting about another project with film four and Paul Webster gave to me as I was leaving, he gave me the book under the skin and said, I'm not going to say anything about this book. Just read it on the plane. I was living in Los Angeles then he said, read it on the plane back to LA and tell me what you think. And I'm actually a slow reader. I I, I like reading books slowly, but I, I read it. And I probably didn't finish it on the plane, but I I finished it as soon as I got back to L.A. And I just emailed him and said, this is staggering. It it, it was a really unusual novel um, by a novelist. You know, at that time, Michael Faber wasn't really well known. Uh, He went on to write The Crimson Petal and the White, which was a 900 page novel Set in Victorian England, which I, I also read and also pitched for as a film, although didn't get. But that was a big studio film, which again I don't think has ever been made. I think unless I'm wrong. Um, but under the skin was this extraordinary story. I can see why he said he didn't want to tell me anything about it because it was. It wasn't evident from the first page that it was science fiction. It was set in the Highlands of Scotland, which is you know not where most science fiction is set. Um, it was fairly obvious early on it was a very predatory young woman um who picked up hitchhikers and then did strange things to them and one of the things that was fascinating about the book which jonathan kind of preserved in the film in a different way in a kind of more cinematic way perhaps rather than the way we were discussing originally but in the book the book is written so that the aliens, I mean, it's written very much from... Is- I don't think in Jonathan's film, Isley is ever named. I'm not even sure if she's named in the credits. But anyway, her name in the book, her character's name is Isley. And in the book, she is an alien. Well, she's an alien. You, you, you gather she's an alien, but the, the, the aliens are kind of the humans. And then the humans that she preys on, they call them... The, the, her species in the book... Call them vodsals So we are vodsels, and we are these kind of pretty dumb creatures that are, are prey for for Italy, and she also has others of of her her species um, helping her in uh, at this remote Scottish farm. Anyway, it was just this extraordinary film, which uh, sorry, extraordinary book, which was kind of science fiction, but the lowest tech science fiction I'd ever read. It wasn't really about you know. There weren't spaceships and technology. She is visited by her kind of superior, this character called Amos Vess, who doesn't really survive into the film, into the finished film, into Jonathan's film, other than as the motorcycle rider. I guess that's the closest. But Amos Vess in the book, well, again, I mean, there's so so many things kind of, you know, were in the book which didn't make it through to the film. But in the book, her species are four-legged, and she has been broken, which was a fascinating again to me. She has been basically had her bones broken and reset and kind of, uh, I, I, I'm not sure if it actually specifies that metal rods have been put in, but the kind of idea is that, you know, there are metal rods keeping her upright and they've re- created these huge breasts for her to make her seductive to the hitchhikers she has to pick up. But when Amnys Vest, Vest comes to visit, he is this sleek four-legged creature who is beautiful and runs like a Cheetah, or a puma, or panther, or whatever. Um, and you know, Jonathan and I in the early days spent a long time talking about how on earth we were going to do this—like have him run in this. And Jonathan had just been shooting some stuff. I think, I think maybe some commercials in South Africa. So he was thinking about you know African creatures running on the savanna or whatever. But anyway, this book was just astonishing, and I read it as I say on the plane back, and you know, probably in the next twelve hours back in LA. And I emailed Paul Webster, and I think they flew me back to England literally about less than a week later. I mean, I was back on a plane back to, to London to meet with Jonathan. Well, f- before I met with Jonathan, they showed me Sexy Beast, which was just finished being recut. It had just been recut and was was kind of ready. So I, I flew back just for a couple of days, and I, I watched Sexy Beast in the morning. And then I, I think I had lunch with Jonathan And then we had a meeting with film four and basically that was it. Like, you know, Jonathan and I clicked at the lunch. We went into film four. We talked to Paul. We all seemed to be on the same page about where we want, kind of what we wanted to do with the the book of under the skin and the kind of film, you know, the strange film we wanted to make of it. And then I went back to LA and waited for Jonathan to come out there, which I think was about two or three weeks later. And one of the strange notes for me that Jonathan gave me was would I watch, I knew he was a huge Kubrick fan and that was pretty evident even from Sexy Beast, much more so later on from birth, but, um, you yeah, know, he's a huge, huge Kubrick fan as, as indeed am I. But he asked me if I would watch Barry Lyndon and I know Kubrick's films pretty well, but I've only ever seen, I'd only ever seen at that point Barry Lyndon once. And so I watched Barry Lyndon probably two or three times before he came Out to LA, and in fact, I think I was watching it the afternoon. Afternoon, he arrived with my wife. I was watching it, and I was thinking, you know, how does Barry Lyndon? This I think it's seventeenth century. I'm probably wrong about the century, but yeah, how does this period film about a kind of opportunist character played by um, Ryan O'Neill? with Marisa Berenson looking gorgeous in all this you know I remember reading stories of how Kubrick lit scenes with literally with candlelight with thousands of candles and I think Zeiss developed special lenses so that he could film you know the film stock in those days it was hard to film in really low lighting but he had special film stock developed so it wouldn't be too grainy and he actually shot a lot of scenes with candlelight but i was thinking how on earth does this period film relate to a science fiction project <laughs> And then, you know, talking with John, I think he was out there for maybe two weeks and Jonathan and, and I just you know, we went to bookstores, we looked at we looked at various books. I remember we both bought a copy of is it Sebastio Salgado, um, his his, his amazing photographs of workers around the world and there were photographs of people I forget which what the mines are, whether they're copper mines or gold mines. And whether I can't remember whether they're South America or, or South Africa, but there are these pictures of, of like rickety wooden ladders going down into these huge kind of you know mines and and these human beings like ants just climbing the ladders. And we started talking about, I guess, about the film as as an exploitation of humans, that you know we would keep it kept in Scot- it would be kept in Scotland in terms of setting. Although we actually talked at one point about shooting it in Iceland so that it looked like Scotland but would be a Scotland you'd never actually seen before. Although I'm not sure that Scotland has been seen that much on film anyway. But um, the idea was that maybe maybe there'd even be volcanoes, I think. But that it would be set in Scotland. And we were trying to figure out, you know, like if if they were aliens and they'd come to this planet, like why would they go to Scotland? And we decided at that time that our approach was that it was kind of like the ass end of empire that you know, they they had the, this empire, and it would be like this was like the the worst place to be sent, pretty much. And that the, the vodsels, the humans, weren't even a primary source of food for the species; they were a luxury. We decided they were a luxury item, so basically, we decided that humans were like foie gras, and that Italy was going around picking up. You know, because it wasn't a very efficient way of getting. We were trying to figure out why would you just pick up individual hitchhikers you know if you were going to kind of eat humans why wouldn't you just capture a whole bunch of them and farm them so anyway we we came up with this whole scenario of 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 her picking up hitchhikers and picking particularly muscly or well-built hitchhikers taking them back to this remote farm in the highlands near where my dad was born and then in the book they're castrated and all kinds of horrible they're fattened up and all kinds of horrible things happen to them and you know it's kind of like fattening up a goose for foie gras and 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 i kind of like this idea and and, you know we had an opening that i wrote where there was a sort of mr kipling you probably don't know mr kipling there's mr kipling cakes in england and they had tv commercials with a voice that was very sort of avuncular and english and kind of colonial but we had a narration right at the beginning, which was, you know, explaining that this was, this was a sort of talking about the Scots as this strange race of beings, you know, unintelligent and, and unmotivated, and and essentially, you know, we then showed Isley picking up prey, taking them back to the farm, and we and we showed. I think in the last script I wrote, there was a, a castration scene and I don't know how explicit it was, but I, I remember there was a key scene where one of the Vodzels, one of the, one of the fattened up humans escapes and is running on the road. And I think someone actually sees this, this weird naked fat human castrated human running on the road. And, you know, all of this was fascinating. And I mean, this, you know, this is a, a, an unbelievable project to work on. You know, the war zone, my book about incest is pretty weird and out there and I wrote it at a very difficult time in my life when my first son had cancer and essentially was dying, although I was in total denial of that at the time. And, you know, The War Zone then I worked on as a film for a long time, and it, it, that was a pretty difficult and challenging subject to work on. But Under the Skin is is probably, I would say without doubt, actually, the, the weirdest project I've ever worked on. And I've worked on some pretty weird projects <laughs> And, you know, a lot of that survived in, in different ways in, in, in the finished movie. I mean, it took John, what, 13 years to make the movie? <laughs> but it's different. You know, he he went with a much more kind of abstract cinematic interpretation of things. And, you know, the film's power, those those, those amazing scenes where Scarlett Johansson draws, I think she's naked and the, the man is naked, and she kind of draws the character to walk across this sort of pool or abyss of liquid, black liquid, and they slowly get submerged is kind of, I guess, the equivalent of, you know, the farm and the castration and the fattening up of the voxels but in a much more abstract, unexplained way. And, you know, a lot is unexplained in the film. And I think it's very strong in many ways because of that. It's very hard for me to judge the film because, I was so involved with and fascinated by aspects of the book, you know, which which aren't in the film that it, it, it's very hard for me to see the film through eyes that aren't colored by knowledge of the book. For example, in the book, a key part of the book is that the car, the vehicle in, in the film it's a truck, but it, or a, a van. But in the book it's a car that Isley drives. And she has this button that she presses? She she lures these hitchhikers, these male hitchhikers in, you know, partly with her large fake breasts and and partly just by talking to them in a not particularly engaging fashion. She was never supposed to be a, a great conversationalist, but when she decided that she had you know a good specimen, she would press this button and these needles in the arms of the passenger seat would and and, and I think somehow around the legs would kind of suddenly. I always imagine almost like teeth closing in on the arms and legs of of the hitchhiker and they would presumably sedate the hitchhiker and then she would drive back to the farm and she had someone else working with her at the farm um a character whose name um hang on, I think it's Eswiss, S- but I'm trying to see if I have a note of it yeah I think it's S- Swiss who, who's at the farm working with her and her relationship with him was like quite key in in our film as well and that was it was very Everything was very kind of minimal in terms of dialogue. There wasn't a lot of conversation between her and Eskis either, and you weren't sure how much they liked each other. But anyway, I I had this extraordinary experience where before the film, long before the film was cast, we originally talked about Bjork. That was that was kind of Jonathan's first idea and dream was that Bjork would be perfect for the film if she hadn't made dancer in the dark (laughs) yeah he wanted he wanted basically an unknown I mean he wound up with Scarlett Johansson who isn't an unknown but who I thought gave an astonishing performance and actually kind of shared her whole Hollywood persona extraordinarily well and could almost have been an unknown and I thought that was really quite an achievement in itself but he wanted an unknown and we talked about Bjork and as I say you know the problem was she'd made a film and he kind of wanted someone who hadn't made a film I had this extraordinary experience where Penelope Cruz asked to meet me, to actually to discuss something else. She wanted me to write something for her and Selma Hayek, I think for, for actually for Penelope to, to direct. And I met her at the at the Chateau Marmont, and she was also, she loved, she'd read my Under the Skin script and she loved it. And she actually acted out the scene, she said, I love the scene with the needles in the car. And she kind of acted it out as if she was, you know, isley seducing the driver. And that was pretty cool, <laughs> having Penelope Cruz perform that for me personally over a table at the Chateau Marmont. And I guess, you know, when I see the film, I do miss the needles from the car. But that's, you know, Jonathan would probably say that, that that's the writer in me being too too tied to the book. But I think anyone who who'd worked on the, you know, I don't know how he worked in the end on on the the last draft of the script but i don't know if he threw the book out of the window probably but that that's kind of the feeling i got is is that he went with the essence of the book the kind of you know very fine distillate of, of the book a very a very small amount of what was in the book but there were things that i like you know it, there's always things i mean i remember when i saw the shining you know which i think is a magnificent film and probably better than the book. You know, I think Kubrick's film of The Shining is extraordinary. I know Stephen King hates it with a passion and made his or was involved in making that awful television version. The Kubrick film has that amazing scene looking down into the maze with Shadow Duval and, and the child, you know, walking there's a model of the maze that's at the hotel and there's a model of the maze in the lobby, and Jack Nicholson looks down on the model and you actually see the tiny figures of Shelley Duvall and the child in the model of the maze and you know that kind of is like an Escher drawing it's like this amazing kind of psychological thing but what was missing from the Kubrick film that was so amazing in the book was the, the topiary the the bushes shaped like animals that moved which I remember when I read the book scared the shit out of me I mean you know, it's one of the few books I haven't read a lot of horror books in my life it's not a genre that I, I read a lot of but I remember reading The Shining and Literally reading it in bed and kind of looking behind me to see, you know, check there weren't things behind me. And actually, I mean, I think probably Kubrick's film of The Shining stays a good deal closer to the book than Jonathan's film of Under the Skin does to the book. I think his film is pretty, a pretty free interpretation of the book. But that's fine. I mean, you know, I I think Apocalypse Now is an amazing, 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 I'm not sure if if you'd call it an adaptation of Heart of Darkness, but, you know, it's inspired by Heart of Darkness it's obviously a different century and a different kind of setting but i think it preserves the heart of heart of darkness remarkably well and that to me is what adaptations should be you know they should be free and extraordinary and make great films rather than being true to the book necessarily i don't think being true to you know true to the book can kill a film Occasionally, it can work, but uh, you know the Maltese Falcon is an example of where it works remarkably well. You read the book of the Maltese Falcon, and it's a stunning book. And you know this, the classic story is that John Huston had his secretary basically type up the dialogue from the book as a script, and he showed that to, I think it was Warner Brothers, and that was the script that got made. Um, I'm not sure if that's entirely true, but certainly the dialogue in the book of the Maltese Falcon is pretty much the same as the dialogue in the film, and they both work remarkably well um but that that is probably an exception of a, you know an adaptation being as good better than the i don't know the book is amazing and so is the film but i think you know, with under the skin the, the great thing is and being an author myself i've always felt this with film is you know that you have the book anyway so why why fight to preserve everything that's in the book when you know, when you're adapting it because you've got the book to turn to and the book is always going to be there and why not make the film something else you give the film its own life and that i think is really important when
3: it comes to your adaptation what was that moment for israeli and and was she Isserly in your draft but what was that moment where she kind of started to turn because there's the the rape scene in the book where it just kind of throws her head completely in the other way was that
6: there for you Yeah, I think the rape scene was... That was a scene that that Jonathan and I discussed a lot, and we tried it in different ways, and I I think that probably was the turning point. I I guess one of the questions then is the turning point to where? And in a way, you know, my script of it had her at the end. I'm not really sure where she's My, my My sense was at the end that she... She was kind of not not becoming human, but but had started, I, and I wouldn't even go so far as to say that she was developing empathy, but that she was intrigued by humans and was kind of absorbing some sort of human spirit by the end. And, and I think I ha- I think throughout the film or throughout the script that I wrote, there was always this sense that she subsisted on you know alien food. I don't think we specified what it was. And I remember, I think, in, I mean, it's a long time. I don't re- reread my script every day or anything, but um, I'm pretty sure that in the final scene of the script, the last draft of my script, she's picked, I think I turned it around and had her as a hitchhiker, and she's picked up, I think, by some truck drivers or a truck driver, and they have potato, you know, a bag of potato chips. So In England, they'd be called crisps, potato crisps, but here they'd be potato chips. And she tries the potato chips, and and that was supposed to suggest that she was kind of trying human food for the first time. Um, But I think, yeah, the rape was like the central turning point of, of turning her into some, I guess, into something other than, you know, at the beginning, she's very much a kind of puppet. I mean, of, as we saw it at the time, as we were talking about it, a puppet of the Empire and also I mean what I didn't say which I think is 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 probably interesting for, hopefully for the podcast is that we were working in you near know, 2000 2001 before 9/11 uh, at least on some of the scripts i think maybe the scripts continued after that but um and we had been trying to find a culture that we could use as just some sort of a a touchstone for our aliens that wouldn't be obviously you know like star trek or star wars or whatever and we had picked on the Taliban, and I think Film Four provided me with a copy of Behind the Veil, which was the documentary about the Taliban when they were, or well, before nine eleven, before people had mostly heard of them. Um, but they, you know, they destroyed two giant Buddhas. They were destroying, you know, icons of, of other religions. But mostly, I remember from Behind the Veil which I think was shot by a woman, I think a CNN woman filmmaker, um, literally behind the veil with a a hidden camera, which was an incredibly brave thing to do. And the scene I remember most was the soccer stadium in Afghanistan where they were having public executions, and I think four people were being executed. And I remember actually having a discussion with Form 4 about that because they were saying how barbaric it was. And I was saying, well, yes, it is barbaric, but actually, you know, if you look back through British history, um, you know, just to take British history, I mean, the Spanish conquistadors and everyone else have their own <laughs> their own history. Um, but if you look through British history and, you know, the time of the, the Tower of London and the torture of Guy Fawkes or, you know, sticking traders' heads on pikes and things, it's kind of like the Taliban are, you know, just at a different historical point than we are. You know, we we are in the 20... 20th 21st century and find that behavior abhorrent but you know there was a time essentially you know British monarchy came to the throne by being the best at hacking people down i mean that's you know essentially how land was grabbed the 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 environment in which the book of under the skin takes place they mention Inverness or Michael Faber mentions Inverness Inverness is not very far from Culloden which was a hugely important battle Uh, between the Jacobites of the Scottish and the British, and was also actually made into a a TV, one of the most amazing TV documentaries I've ever seen in my life, which hugely affected my approach to filmmaking. Um, I don't know if you know a filmmaker called Peter Watkins. He made this TV documentary, Culloden, which I think was like a full-length feature film length. And he shot, and this was in like 1964 or something, but he he shot the Battle of Culloden, with TV cameras in the trenches talking to, I think, Bonnie Prince Charlie and talking to the soldiers and, and the women who were grieving over their lost husbands. And and it was just this extraordinarily political, you know, fiery, like the British are these imperialist swine. I think it was a metaphor for Vietnam. I'm pretty sure it was like a metaphor for America and Vietnam. And I remember watching that. when we, My wife and I lived in Sydney at one point for six months, and I, I managed to get a copy of it. Actually, on 16mm at the Sydney Public Library, they had a moviola, and I could watch it on 16mm, which was fantastic, sitting in the library, watching it. And I was actually crying watching it. But anyway, all I'm, all I'm trying to say is, and I'm not certainly not trying to excuse the Taliban for one moment, who were who totally horrific, but I'm just saying that you know, British history is, and, and the history of most European countries and most countries – has their own Taliban or their own similar actions. But we, we'd been looking at the Taliban and the weird thing was, you know, I'd been, I'd been looking, I'd been living with the kind of Taliban as this, this touchstone for at that point, probably about a year. And I remember finishing a script. I think it might've been the second draft actually. And I would finished the script, the script, maybe a couple of days before. And I went for a walk. We were living in Laurel Canyon then in, in Los Angeles. And I went for a walk with a dog up in the Canyon. And, It was just this weird thing of literally about 30 or 40, I think they were crows in the sky. I don't think they were hawks. I think they were crows. But these birds just flying in the sky in a flock in a way that I'd never seen them gathering before and then all perching on trees. And it was really ominous, very much like Hitchcock's birds. And I I remember coming home and saying to Sharon, my wife, something weird is going to happen. I said, you know, I've just seen this and, like, And my thought was there's going to be an earthquake. You know, it's like L.A. There's going to be and birds. I know animals and birds are very kind of sensitive to things like earthquakes approaching. They they seem to sense them before humans do. And I just thought it was going to be an earthquake. And we went to bed that night and actually overslept and and didn't wake up until about nine o'clock the next morning. And we woke up to a message on. I think the first thing we heard was voicemail from a friend saying we're at war. Turn the TV on, and then we turned the TV on and saw the planes crashing into the tower, and it was just bizarre that you know having worked with the Taliban and referenced the Taliban and and, and done quite a lot of research into them, that suddenly they were being blamed for this attack on you know the the, the World Trade Center, and that was just one of, you know one of the many weird things uh, about working on the film. I mean that was probably not uh, not the most significant, but it, it was certainly very strange. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess you know, watching the film, for me, probably even more so than than the the needles in the car. What I miss the most is because I thought it was one of the most original things in the book. I, I, I loved the idea of Italy and Amnesverse and Eswis of them being this this species or race of creatures that were four legged naturally, and that had had to be. I don't think Amos Fess had been altered, he was still four-legged, but that they'd had to be kind of surgically altered to fit in with humans and and blend in. And I always thought that that was, you know, an an incredible idea and somehow kind of connected also with Dancer in the Dark. I'm not quite sure how, but Bjork's performance in that is so frail and vulnerable. And there's that incredible scene in Dancer in the Dark, which I, I actually found really hard to watch because I'm totally opposed to Capital Punishment. And I I had to watch it. I I walked out of the theater because it was just too distressing for me. And I had to watch it in sections on DVD. But that scene where she commits the murder, um, she she uses a filing cabinet, I think, doesn't she, Bjork, in that? But then time winds backwards and there's a song. And it's kind of like her her walking back from what she's done. and, And she's singing in that extraordinary Bjork voice. And that kind of frailty and vulnerability were very much in my mind when I was writing Italy. But I think the remarkable thing is that Jonathan with the film managed to preserve a a really powerful sense of that, but in a completely different way. You know, there's there's no specifics of anyone being surgically altered, but I think the character that he created with Scott, and I I also give a huge credit to Scarlett Johansson, who's one of my favorite actresses anyway, um, you know, for all kinds of films from, girl with a pearl earring to Boston translation to, to I mean she's just amazing. Her performance and also the way they shot it, you know, they shot it Jonathan did this thing of shooting some of it with non-actors with hidden cameras and hidden microphones and then getting them to sign releases afterwards. And I gather half the people wouldn't sign the releases, but they actually picked you know they picked up real hitchhikers. Some of some of the hitchhikers were real hitchhikers. And all of that contributed to a sense of alienation, I'm not sure if alienation is, the, of, of aliens maybe is better than alienation because that means something else. But a sense of aliens in a way that I've never really seen in a film before. And I think the film has an enormous strength. You know, it's obviously not like everybody's kind of cup of tea. It's not It's not Star Wars. <laughs> but I think it's a film that people will watch again and again and probably will grow in stature with time because I think it's it's a quite... Extraordinary, you know. He spent thirteen years of his life making it. He obviously is, you know, hugely committed to it. I still feel a sense of ownership of it, even though I don't, you know. And I, I, I still feel that I want it to be mine. Um, it's one of those projects that once you get involved with it, it's kind of, you know, it, it, with no pun intended, it, it really does get under your skin. And I think it's a really original take on on humanity you know i think that's really what it's about is not really about aliens it's about how we treat each other you know i I looked online and i saw some people say you know it's kind of got like gender issues i mean some people think that but i've seen criticisms that it's sexist in terms of how scarlett johansson's character is only seducing men then i've seen other arguments that in fact it's a very kind of feminist film because she's a very Um, powerful figure and she's the one who's in control. uh, Jonathan said he really wasn't, that wasn't what interested him him about it. Uh, And I can't remember exactly now the word he used, but maybe it was humanist. But but I I, I think it is a film and, and a book about, you know, how we treat each other probably, and maybe the horrible ways we treat each other. And, you know, maybe that's why without consciously thinking it, well, I don't know how consciously Jonathan was thinking it, but you know maybe that's why we were looking at the Taliban because the Taliban are one extreme of how humans treat each other. And as a parent, you know, as a father of children who aren't allowed to watch the news, we don't watch live television, we don't let our children watch the news. They don't know anything about ISIS. You know, obviously one day they will have to, but I really don't want them to be thinking about beheadings and things like that. Just the fact that humans are capable of that. And again, as a father, you know, you see children and you see the kind of beauty of children when they're born and and that incredible, I'm not sure if innocence is the right word because children, they are innocent, but they're also, you know, functioning animals who can survive and probably, you know, if they had to, would be quite fierce to survive. But you you see children grow up and, and hopefully given the right guidance, they can create a pretty good society, but then you get the Hitlers and the Taliban's, and you you think, well, why you know why does this happen, and, and you know why does a nation turn this way, or why does a part of a nation turn this way? And I think that's a really fascinating area. And I think that under the skin, in every carnation, you know, the book, the scripts I worked on, and Jonathan's finished film, I think touches on those issues in a very interesting way. I mean, I, I quite honestly don't know what, even what I take away from the film. You know, when I saw it, it was very hard for me to see because having worked for it on it for so long and, and having been so passionate about it, and then it also had this other kind of weird role in my life as a screenwriter, which was that I switched to CAA during the writing of it, I think, or after, yeah, I think just after I'd written it. And CAA is the biggest agency in Hollywood, creative, creative artists agency. And I had really amazing, you know, a team of really amazing agents there who put the script out probably, (laughs) probably not to the pleasure of Nick Wexler, the producer and Jonathan, but who put the script out as a script sample because, you know, that's how Hollywood works. Your latest script is usually your, your writing sample. And, it was just this phenomenal sample with the studios, which always puzzled me because I had written, as you'll see with the script, I had written a draft, the, the draft, the third draft, which is, is the one I'm happiest with. I'd use, you know, the book has its own language. It has these weird names, Amnesty, and Italy, and then it has strange terms like Vodsels for humans. So I had tried to create a language for the film, and I'd used little bits of Moroccan Arabic, which I know a little bit. I, I love Morocco. And little bits of, um, I think, Swedish. I, I researched kind of Scandinavian because of where my father, he came from a village called Rose Hardy, which is not that far from Inverness, which was invaded by Vikings. And, and you know, that, that part of Scotland is actually up parallel, in fact, north of a lot of Norway and really pretty far north. And I remember my mother saying, you know, when she first went up from London to my father's village, that she woke up the next day and heard people outside the window speaking and she couldn't understand a single word they were saying. She thought she was in a completely foreign country. And, you know, this is, this is a country England, you know, England and Scotland could be, can fit into California. So it's extraordinary that you have these extremes. So I'd written this script, which, you know, first of all is set in Scotland has this really strange storyline, you know, including the castration and the bottles and everything. And then has this added thing of this language, which I, partially taken from the book and partially created. And yet I had Hollywood executives reading me passages from my own script and super excited about it. And yet at the same time, we were all aware that, you know, no Hollywood studio would ever back this film. It was not a Hollywood movie. And yet the executives that I was meeting with, you know, and and it got me other work and it was, it was just, it's just, it's kind of like, you know, what's bizarre about Hollywood, which is that it's filled with actually mostly, I would say, super intelligent people. You know, a lot of the people at the studios have Harvard or Yale MBAs or liberal arts degrees, but probably more MBAs or legal degrees. Um, But, you know, they're they're really intelligent people who actually tend to like really smart movies, and a lot of them like foreign movies. But that's not what gets made. You know, the system is such that they know, know, and it's increasingly, I'm sure, big data is involved in in assessing what, what works and what doesn't. And so certain kinds of films get made and, and and not the ones that the executives necessarily get excited about. Um I'm sure they're excited about them in other ways, but um so so that was a really weird experience in the in that this you know, the strangest thing I ever worked on was actually the strongest writing sample that I, I, I probably had. So um that was kind of ironic and, and always amused me that uh, that people were so excited by it but, you know, would never you know, could never get it made i mean it's a miracle even even with film four that it got made i think quite honestly it's uh, it's and I, I know it was a long process and, and you know there were a lot of different iterations with jonathan and, and the script over the years
3: you had written the
6: three drafts and
3: you know you wrote the second one right around 9 11 obviously when was the third draft complete and when was that decision to kind of leave the project
6: I'm not entirely sure. I, I'm guessing that it probably was, two, if 9 11 was 2001, I think it was probably 2002, because I'm pretty sure I wrote another draft after 9 11. Um, the second draft, Jonathan and I had collaborated, the first draft I'd written myself. Um, yeah, and I mean, it's common for films to go through multiple drafts, and you, I mean, actually, less so now for writers to sign, well, maybe in europe it's still common to sign a three a three draft contract but in hollywood you know there's a big battle between the writers guild and the studios because mostly now the studios want to sign writers only to a one draft contract and maybe a one draft and a polish but you know writers are basically interchangeable and and you get one draft from a writer and then you bring another writer in and that happens and and you know most movies have 10 or 12 writers you might have three writers credited but they've got many more writers than that who aren't credited um that's just the way the game is it's just the way the industry works um and you kind of have to accept that going in as a writer but i think i wrote a draft and the the one that i'm happiest with the third draft was after jonathan and i in the second draft had tried collaborating with me showing him pages as i wrote it and then him contributing and I just don't. I don't work well like, like that. It's like it just doesn't. I mean, at polished stage, if you're shooting, then that's different. If you're working like with a director and you're actually shooting, then obviously you know you want his or her input immediately. And, and you know, if you're actually working with physical locations and trying to make something work, then you all want to put your heads together. But I I, I prefer kind of working on my own. I mean, I, I'm happy. I love collaborating and I love having lots of meetings and, you know, recording the meetings and taking tons of notes and, and having lots of visual references and stuff like that. But then I liked it to, to write on my own. And I think I wrote the third draft after nine eleven. And I think at some point, probably in maybe spring of 2002, I think it was kind of partly my contract was up, you know, like I'd, I'd done three drafts and polishes or whatever the, the contract specified. It still wasn't at a stage where everyone felt, you know, that I guess it was good to go. I think Jonathan still wasn't really sure what he wanted to do with it exactly. I think he wanted to do something different, maybe just get it further away from the book. And I had stayed, you know, relatively close to the book. We just, you know, I had other, I, I think that that was around the time, you know, I, uh, I'm trying to think that period, was probably around the same period that I was getting involved with the Angelina Jolie project that I was working on. So, you know, that was super exciting for me too. It just kind of, you know, we, we we. I mean, there was no bad feelings. It's just, you know, contractually you're up and unless they contract you for more drafts, then you've done your job, you've been paid and you basically, as a writer, you probably don't want to write any more unless they're going to pay you more. <laughs> to be to be blunt. Although I think on a project like this I probably would have written more. Um but as I say, I think I think Jonathan was probably still trying to figure out what he wanted to do with it because you know we'd had a lot of discussions and, and we talked in different directions. I do want to put it on record, by the way, that I at one point suggested Scarlett Johansson for this film, and he said no, because at that point he still was looking for an unknown. So it's interesting that he actually he, I, I thought she would be great because I was a huge fan of hers early on. But he still, I think he was interested in PJ Harvey, the singer, possibly, whom he'd been working with on music videos. But he wanted, I think he wanted someone he could kind of mold into just a really unusual character. But, you know, I think in the end, with with Scarlett Johansson, he got that. I think he, you know, got a performance that very, very few actresses could give. I mean, I, I don't know that she would have been well, obviously, it would have been a different performance entirely. But you know, I think Penelope Cruz is another actress who is extraordinary and could probably, you know, there are some actresses I've worked with in my life, like Tilda Swinton, for example. I think could do anything. You know, I think Tilda is, you know, she was the, the mother in the war zone. But my my probably my favourite. I love Orlando. You know, going r- way way back. But I love Tilda Swinton and Michael Clayton. That scene in Michael Clayton, where George Clooney confronts her at the end and and is is recording their conversation and is basically negotiating, you know, over the pharmaceutical industry's um, horrific killing of people, and Tilda Swinton has that kind of breakdown almost in front of him. And it's just, I think she's just the most extraordinary actress and I, I think you know tilda swinton would have been an interesting choice for firstly i think she would have been i don't think i ever suggested her but um she i think is one of the most interesting actresses out there and yeah i mean this is obviously my take on under the skin and and i'm sure i'm sure i'm sure everyone who sees the film has their own very unique reaction to it because it's it's definitely an unusual film a highly unusual film by any standards, you know, certainly by the standards of today, but I think even by the standards of a time when there were many more unusual films being made. And I think you know, Jonathan is a pretty unique director in that regard.
1: thanks to you, Alexander Stewart, for taking the time to talk to us about Under the Skin on this week's show. So, Mike, uh, in your obsessive nature, which is what makes the show so compelling, uh, the comparison between the book and the film, what do you say, sir? This
3: one had, as we heard from Mr. Stewart, it had quite a long gestation period. And it changed quite a bit from book to movie. Alexandra, did you have a chance to read any of this stuff?
0: You know, I actually started the book. I picked up the book after I saw the film, and and I was super excited to read it. And I have to say, I really enjoyed the writing of the book, but I couldn't finish it. Um, The movie, I think, just felt a bit too present in my mind, so I still have it on my bookshelf. And it is one of the uh, things that I'm determined to get to one of these days, but it is so different and there's so much more detail to it and i think that threw me off when i when i dove into it
3: it's not your responsibility (laughs) to have to read all this stuff that's where that's where i come in the first few screenplays the ones that mr stewart wrote were very similar to what the book gave us and the book let's see to boil it down to kind of its base Uh, essence, it is very much the same as far as a woman traveling alone on the A9 in Scotland and picking up hitchhikers and taking them back to a farm. This case is a farm, it's not a house, and she has a group of people back there. Well, she has a, yes, she has a group of people back there, a group of human beings back there who help dispatch the guys she in her vehicle she drives a little toyota i believe it is and they have these needles under the seats that once she determines a guy is the proper fit for her criteria she'll press a little button on the steering wheel and shoot uh some poison or you know basically puts him to sleep with this material that she shoots into his thighs Takes them back to this farm and these human beings come out and they take care of this vodsal because that's what people that's what we call humans. In this book they call them vodsels. And what we would consider alien in this book are called human beings. They are quadrupeds, they kind of look like alien llamas almost. I kept picturing wolves in my head quite a bit, these larger than live wolves kind of thing. And Isserli, the main female character, Laura, a.k.a. Scarlett Johansson in the film, she has been genetically, not genetically, she has been surgically modified to stand on two legs to, she's had her tail removed, her whole back has been completely changed so that she can stand and sit uh, like one of these Vodzils. So she is very much a uh, an undercover Vodzil in this case. And she is going out on the road, picking up these men, because they are really good food for the human beings back on her planet. And so more than an examination of gender roles. So there is a lot of discussion of gender roles more than a discussion of work because there's a lot of things in here about uh, her boss and when her boss shows up and there's a lot of inequality as far as classes and just more than a discussion about classism. This is really a discussion about what we eat and how we eat. And I found it to be, Really fascinating the way that language is used to put a spin on it so that we, us people, the people that are listening to this, the people that I'm talking to right now, we are meat. And she is just there to get meat. And it was just very, very compelling from that way and the way that they – I hate to use the word dehumanize because – we are not human beings according to their their vocabulary the way that she looks at us the way that she eventually does get to have an empathy with us because we do share some traits with the human beings but we are a lower species and just that whole idea of what we consider you know and then it was hilarious because yesterday i'm i'm on facebook because i'm on facebook all the time and there was this goofy little comic it was these two people talking and one person is eating the other person is is reacting and it's like i'm eating a cat and it's like oh that's disgusting no i'm kidding i'm eating a cow oh okay that's okay then no i'm kidding i'm eating a dog oh that's disgusting and just this whole idea of it's okay to eat certain things, but not other things. And in this universe, the universe of under the skin, eating homo sapiens is absolutely fine. And we are such a delicacy and really Italy is doing a service by thinning the herd. She is that wolf who's on the outside of the caribou pack, who picks off the lesser members of the pack, making the genetic strain of those that remain stronger She's the one that sees these hitchhikers and says, these people have no attachments. They are the outsiders of the society of Homo sapiens. They're easy pickings. I can take them back, and then I can process them, or these humans at the place process these creatures, these vatsouls by doing the most horrific things to them and then if you guys have seen any of these kind of like forks over knives or any of these kind of documentaries you know the horrors that go on with our food so you know that you know chickens are kept in the dark you know what horrific conditions veal goes through basically homo sapiens are being treated like veal, they're being castrated, they're being pumped full of antibiotics, they're being they're having their tongues ripped out, they're having all these horrible things done to them in the name of meat and in the eventual name of commerce
1: sounds good to me yummy 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 yummy. let's, yum, let's yum.
3: have burgers after this
1: well there was a whole bit years ago and i think it was in first um dennis leary uh, stand-up album where he talks about why do we eat certain things and why we don't eat certain things
2: you don't want to eat meat because i love the animal. that's why i don't want to eat them Yeah, me too. I love animals. I love my dog. Oh, he's so cute, my doggy. I love him. But that's the problem. We only want to save the cute animals, don't we? Yeah. Why don't we just have animal auditions, line them up one by one, and interview them individually? What are you? I'm an otter. And what do you do? I swim around my back and do cute little human things with my hands. You're free to go. (laughs) And what are you? I'm a cow. Get in the fucking truck, okay, pal? But I'm an animal. You're a baseball glove. Get on that truck. I'm an animal I have right here. You. Here's your fucking cousin. Get on the truck, pal. We kill the cows to make jackets out of them, and then we kill each other for the jackets we made out of the cow.
3: It, it's interesting the way that the, the story changes, because you, we get none of that in Under the Skin. We get none of the the meat, basically. You know, We see the man disappear. We see his skin remaining. Yeah. We know that she's on the hunt for men, but we don't necessarily know why.
1: But at the same time, when you bring that across, when you talk about it, I can it, – it, even though it's not implicit in the book, I can look at the movie – I mean implicit in the film, I can look at the film now through the eyes of what you told me about the book and go, I could kind of see that in there, meaning that – Look at who she's picking off. She's picking off these these uh, solo guys around the edges. Um, you could even say that the guy who has the deformity. You know, all of this stuff, like you were talking about, the idea of uh, genetic thinning and the whole idea of improving the stock and all of that stuff, taking a very livestock aspect to it. You, you could kind of see that with the rundown of, of all of the ones that she went out of her way to pick up in some way. Those
3: initial scripts that we talked to Mr. Stewart about, it's interesting because he knew that— Glazer is a big fan of Kubrick so there are certain points in the, the film in the script where we have title cards that say things like Thursday and Tuesday you know bring us right back to The Shining and I'm like I'm Pretty sure that he put those in there as a little nod to Kubrick inside of here. There's a character that wasn't in the book and wasn't in any of these other incarnations. A character named Dora, who works at a gas station that Isley visits to get you know exactly twenty pounds worth of fuel when she's out there driving around. How she gets the money, I don't know. That's that's a real problem.
1: Jeez, <laughs> geez, why do not these lazy aliens see what happens? Why don't they get a job?
5: They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. We don't know what's happening. And it's got to stop. And it's got to stop fast.
3: There's a moment in the book where they want Isherly to go out and find a woman. They want her to bring back a woman. She only gets men this whole time because men are the delicacy. Women apparently just don't cut it when it comes to this. But they want a breeding female they want to be able to now rather than you know they're moving up with their farming basically rather than us just picking off these guys and doing it very inefficiently with this Israeli worker why don't we get a breeding female and start breeding and now we can have our own stock and maybe we can even start doing our own kind of specialty stuff here when it comes to the vadzol uh, stakes and everything that we 're going to have you know back on whatever planet we 're from, and that kind of is the moment that sets her off there 's a few moments that really help, and that 's the 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 great thing about reading a book is that you get to have very small moments throughout that really help push you into this other direction you know you 've got three hundred pages in here where you have little moments such as Asking about a female, or initially almost getting raped, or the way that her boss interacts with her, and the boss is very much a vegetarian and can't see the logic of this whole system and really questions her she really you know because he's from a different class, she wants to rebel against him, but then he's making all of these really good points, and she is very reluctant to agree with him on anything just because of the principle of he is the son of the owner of the company that provides all the meat why would he question where his bread and butter are coming from to put it in a in a weird way but so anyway that's where we're coming from with the first script the first couple drafts of this thing and in these drafts also we have um she, uh, the boss is actually very evil. This, uh, Ammon Vest is very evil character. Whereas in the book, you want to dislike him because Israeli dislikes him so much, but he actually ends up being a, a pretty fair person. We move on from that into some of the second drafts. There was a, a draft written in 2008 where we move, we're still on the farm, but rather than it just being Isserly and her kind of other. Uh, person who has been modified to look like a vodzel now this is where she gets her name. This is where Laura comes in and there 's this other character Raymond and then in the readings about what the film almost was at one point they had i think it was Brad Pitt was cast as this Raymond character, and he is there and he 's kind of um, he 's almost more important than Laura is, which is kind of a bad thing because So much of the book was about Isserly and very little about her other person, other uh, person that was cut to look like a Vodsel, that now the dynamics have changed. And now it's very much the Raymond and Laura show. And we get a little bit of Laura going out and picking up these men. But it's really more about Raymond and dealing with the community. And they're really – like big members of the community, and it totally just doesn't work whatsoever. So after that, there's a pulling back of everything, and you can tell that Throughout all these years, I think it was what the book was published in 2000, the rights were picked up shortly thereafter. So between 2000 and 2013, when the movie finally comes out, so much of the stuff is just getting stripped away, stripped away. And I think there's the question is, was there too much stuff stripped away? Or can we handle what Glazer has given us as this final product?
0: I think we can absolutely, and I think under the skin uh, one of the reasons why it's so striking and uh, tends to leave people quite speechless is because it does give us the space to examine um, our own fears, our own paranoias, and our own thoughts on humanity. I mean, I think I read in something that uh, when they actually got around to shooting the film that the script was actually about 50 or so pages, so I imagine quite a bit of that was just outline and I think that there is something quite special because, you know, one of the big characters in the film is just Scotland. It's a real testament to where Scotland was, um, you know, a year before their uh, the big referendum, which they had last year. It's, it's a really beautiful and moving portrait of um, this one kind of specific place in humanity. And I, and I really appreciate the film for that.
1: And you even hear as much in, on the radio when she's driving around. There's like a um, uh, talk show that the news or whatever is talking about the referendum coming up next year. So it's interesting because it does set it in a certain place and time.
3: Not too many sci fi films being shot in Scotland.
1: <laughs> what? Train spotting? Come on.
0: Isn't Doctor Who Scottish now?
1: I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> i don't i don't I don't watch doctor of life like i i'm sorry i've tried to avoid that like the plague because it, it was like that and then battlestar galactica people would just talk about con- incessantly and i was like ah. <laughs> anyway i'm gonna get hate mail for that one too
3: you're really overestimating how much feedback our audience gives us
1: yeah, that's right. We get one person who incessantly you know, responds to our posts and nobody else gives a damn. So so maybe I've upset you enough to finally interact with us. We're talking to you,
3: the foreign viewer.
1: That's right. <laughs> that's no, no, not him. Don't call him out. I'm just talking about <laughs> anybody in particular.
3: But he's the person that leaves the most comments on our, our posts. Uh-huh. Probably 90% of our comments are from the foreign viewer.
1: I'm glad that we have some, you know, because now we're
3: I am too!
1: You know, we've got something to react to. Most of the time, people don't care. So, that's exactly. okay.
3: Like I'm spitting into the void.
1: Yeah, that's alright. It's like
3: walking into a pool of black
1: goo. I'm, I'm in the pool of black goo with uh, all my parts of dangling.
3: There were so many comparisons of the film to Kubrick. And when it comes to this, I guess it's kind of that detached feeling that we get when it comes to Kubrick. So many of his films, to me, or especially things like the shining and 2001 especially they feel like they're removed i would say more than anything 2001 it feels like we are looking at things almost as a documentary you know there is a emotional distance that we have between Ourselves and the screen between the things that are going on on the screen, I should say. You know, we all feel a little Dave Bowman-esque as far as, you know, he is so calm in, you know, when he's dealing with this life or death situation with Hal and just that whole idea. Did you guys pick up a lot of Kubrick when it came to this, or, or were you thinking of other stuff as you're watching this
1: film? And a couple. I mean, Man Who Fell to Earth. Uh, for a while, I was also thinking like brother from another planet, although it's not as um, trying to make points like sales does in there. The other thing with the the motorcyclist, and I know this might be an odd comparison, but there is a detachment in terms of the you know the artistic beauty of his work was is Matthew Barney, and I think that maybe the reason why I was thinking Matthew Barney in reference to the. Um, Uh, with the motorcyclist is I think it's Cree Master 4 has this whole thing with um, with racers, has this whole thing with these motorcyclists. So I I don't know why that popped into my head. I just kind of think that maybe it was related to that image.
0: The one thing that um, it triggered in my head when I was watching it, and then it became crystal clear as soon as I did a little bit of research into the film um, was I was reminded very much of um, Karma Police, the Radiohead song with the video where it's um, the car driving in this kind of deserted road and it's very dark and it's very ominous uh, and it's a very unsettling music video. I remember seeing that probably when I was 10 or 11 and it being very, very creepy. And it's like, oh, I thought music videos were like the Spice Girls. And no, they're not. And uh, and then, of course, I read up on it and found out that Glazer actually did that video. So <laughs> it reminded me of Glazer's own work. There's something about this film, and I, and I think for me, one of the things that excites me, and I, and I agree with all of your points. I think especially the Matthew Barney is very, very apt. But there was such a unique experience I had with this film, and something that really just hit me in the gut, and it stayed there. That I almost didn't, you know, want to go through the exercise of comparing it to too many other things. I definitely see the point in doing that, but it, um, it just it, it feels a little too special for me.
3: I think the the one that I got the most was. The Man Who Fell to Earth, uh, just because that film is also so beautiful, and just David Bowie is such an outsider, or at least his character is such an outsider to the world, but he kind of wants to become... One of us a little bit, but yet it seems like by doing so, he's kind of sealing his own fate. And I will gladly admit that it's been a few years since I've seen The Man Who Fell to Earth. It's one of those films where I will pick it up, watch it maybe once every 10 years, and then kind of put it back on the shelf. It's not something that I check out every single day. I think Under the Skin is probably going to be the same thing. It's a beautiful film. I really had a great time watching it. It really... You know, touched a nerve while I was watching it. I loved reading up about it. I loved reading all the screenplays, reading the book and everything. Loved seeing the way that it changed from page to screen. But it's not necessarily something that I'm going to rush out and see again. Would I recommend it?
1: Wholeheartedly. I would recommend it. Uh, The sad thing for me was I only got to watch it once before the show. And I think that it's one of those films that Upon um, multiple viewings, it will be a richer experience because you'll be able to get in and really pull out themes and pull out ideas and and sort of see um, parallels from scene to scene, which the first time or comment from scene to scene, which the first time like I was watching it, like I said, trying to figure out, okay, was this a plot driven thing? Like, what am I working with here? And it just seemed like I was watching the same scene over and over again. Where she's picking up these guys. So, so I think next time I can go. Okay, well, this represents that, and this represents that, and I can get more into this sort of you know abstract symbolic thinking, and um, formalization, and uh, thematics, and all of that fun stuff, which makes me just the biggest geek in the world.
0: Yeah, I've, um, you know, short of forcing some people I know to like sit down and sit down with them and chain them to a couch, you know, I I actively encourage as many people as I can and especially people who have an interest in film and the state of film to watch this. Um, You know, I have a lot of friends who are cinephiles and love movies and it is kind of constantly on their to watch list. And I just have to say that it's so worth your time. And I think even if you don't respond to it, maybe as deeply as we did. It's not a film that you know you can't consider, or that isn't worthy of thought. It's not you know a surface art experiment. There's you know there are too many guts to it to ignore it or discredit it so i think it's something and i agree with you mike um i watched it a couple times in prep for this episode and i'm so glad i did and rob i think you will have an amazing time going back to it but i agree it's something you know maybe every few years every five years every 10 years i will happily come back and watch but it'll it'll be like i'll need to be like really well rested i'll have to be plenty hydrated and and come back to it knowing what i'm in for
3: have a big piece of cake ready for you fuck yeah As we are recording this episode... Under the Skin is available over on Amazon Prime. It is available over on Amazon Streaming. If you have Amazon Prime, it comes with you for free, so check it out. There's some bonus features that are available. There's some bonus features that are available over on YouTube as well. I'll link to some of those over on our post at projection-boot.com. It is available, I don't know if you guys are familiar with this website, but there's a great site called www.canistream.com. Dot it. So can I stream it is basically the website. So good place for all of our listeners. If you are always wondering, ah, oh, can I stream this any place? Can I get this available to me? Is it on Google play or Amazon or iPod or whatever? all those features are there and it saves us a lot of time, uh, rather than, you know, posting a whole bunch of links. If you just go over to, can I stream.it, you can see what is available where, so yeah, let's go ahead. We're going to take a break, another break, and we will play a preview for next week's show. To some, it was the fulfillment of a dream. (laughs) To others, it was an instrument of destruction. (laughs)
2: A creation that could change the course of history. It was stolen from my factory. Where's the package?
6: This is the FBI! What do we tell the president? Tell me exactly why this merchandise is so important to the feds. It's a rocket. A rocket? What? What's the
3: matter? I don't know. something under the seat. Oh, my. What have you got here? What are you supposed to do, a bomb or something? No. I wouldn't
2: touch that if I were you.
3: How do I look? Like a hood ornament.
5: Stand
2: clear.
6: What was that? A flying
3: man! Big Gopher. Are you trying to kill yourself? I like it. oh we got company. You steer, I'll push. you what?
2: I want that rocket, Eddie. Not next week, not tomorrow, now. Keep your eyes open for this dame. Jenny's in trouble. <gasps> They're working for a Nazi agent. With an army equipped with these, you could rule the world. Cliff, you touch one here on her head, I swear <laughs> out <laughs>
6: Him.
2: we've got the girl the rocket will come to us i
3: love her peeve
6: does she know that
3: she's gonna find out let him have it
2: hand him over
1: the
3: rocket the rocketeer
1: <laughs> go get him kid That's right. We're back next week with something a little lighter than under the skin. We'll be talking about Joe Johnston's The Rocketeer. Before we go, we want to thank this week's special guest co-host, Alexandra West. And for folks who may not be familiar with the Faculty of Horror, how do you describe the show?
0: It's a podcast that I co-host with Andrea Subasati, and we take on, you know, films or themes within the horror genre, and we tackle them with an academic bent. Both Andrea and I did our master's, and we both kind of wound up talking about horror films in our final uh, thesis and essays, so it's a place near and dear to our hearts, and it's a place for us to nerd out, get into film theory, but make it accessible and fun and have a good time while we're doing it, and uh, yeah, it's, it's a fun show. So if you're interested in genre film and creepy things like we talked about today, Today, then come check us out at facultyofhorror.com. We're also available on iTunes, Stitcher, all that good stuff.
3: Yeah, I have to say, I listened to your most recent episode, which was the Jesus Wept episode about Hellraiser and Hellraiser 2. Fantastic! That has to rank up with some of my favorite episodes of yours, and you've done a lot of great episodes.
0: Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, we, we were really, really pleased with that episode. We'd waited a while to talk about it because it's such a big topic that we were so excited to do, so thank you very much. I
3: have to say my other favorite of yours was probably the Rosemary's Baby, because you guys had talked about Rosemary's Baby, talked around Rosemary's Baby for a long time, and it was nice to finally get that big bite of rosemary right there in one huge episode, and you guys do... Kind of what we do, but I think that you do it a little bit better than we do. You are much more well spoken, and you have better arguments than we necessarily do around here.
0: Oh, Pish Tosh! Uh, <laughs> thank you very much. But no, I think I think we all enjoy a really deep conversation about film, and I think you know the personalities mixed together. It just creates for really good dialogues in the show at the projection booth and over on faculty of horror so it's just a fun thing and it's a fun time to be doing it frankly
3: well thanks again Alexandra for coming on the show and we will have links over to the faculty of horror over at our website projection-boot.com so folks be sure to head on over click on some links leave us some feedback whether you're the foreign viewer or not follow the link over to iTunes and leave us a review and help us achieve our goal of taking over the world.